Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. The story of a real slave girl. Readings by a white man. (laughs) Well, I'll give you the rest of that story later. But check it out. His strongest wish 
was to purchase his children, but though he several times offered his hard earnings for that purpose, he never succeeded. In complexion, my parents were a light shade of brownish yellow and were termed mulattoes. They lived together in a comfortable home, and though we were all slaves, I was so fondly shielded that I never dreamed I was a piece of merchandise, trusted to them for safekeeping and liable to be demanded of them at any moment. I had one brother, William, who was two years younger than myself, a bright, affectionate child. I had also a great treasure in my maternal grandmother, who was a remarkable woman in many respects. She was the daughter of a planter in South Carolina who, at his death, left her mother and his three children free with money to go to St. Augustine, where they had relatives. It was during the Revolutionary War, and they were captured on their passage, carried back, and sold to different purchasers. Such was the story my grandmother used to tell me, but I do not remember all the particulars. She was a little girl when she was captured and sold to the keeper of a large hotel. I have often heard her tell how hard she fared during childhood, but as she grew older, she evinced so much intelligence and was so faithful that her master and mistress could not help seeing it was for their interest to take care of such a valuable piece of property. She became an indispensable personage in the household, officiating in all capacities, from cook and wet nurse to seamstress. She was much praised for her cooking, and her nice crackers became so famous in the, in the neighborhood that many people were desirous of obtaining them. In consequence of numerous requests of this kind, she asked permission of her mistress to bake crackers at night, after all the household work was done, and she obtained leave to do it, provided she would clothe herself and her children from the profits. Upon these terms, after working hard all day for her mistress, she began her midnight bakings, assisted by her two oldest children. The business proved profitable, and each year she laid by a little, which was saved for a fund to purchase her children. Her master died, and the property was divided among his heirs. The widow had her dower in the hotel, which she continued to keep open. My grandmother remained in her service as a slave, but her children were divided among her master's children. As she had five, Benjamin, the youngest one, was sold in order that each heir might have an equal portion of dollars and cents. There was so little difference in our ages that he seemed more like my brother than my uncle. He was a bright, handsome lad, nearly white, for he inherited the complexion my grandmother had derived from Anglo-Saxon ancestors. Though only ten years old, $720 were paid for him. His sale was a terrible blow to my grandmother, but she was naturally hopeful, and she went to work with renewed energy, trusting in time to be able to purchase some of her children. She had laid up $300, which her mistress one day begged as a loan, promising to pay her soon. The reader probably knows that no promise or writing given to a slave is legally binding. For, according to Southern laws, a slave being property can hold no property. When my grandmother lent her hard earnings to her mistress, she trusted solely to her honor. The honor of a slaveholder to a slave. To this good grandmother, I was indebted for many comforts. My brother Willie and I often received portions of the crackers, cakes, and preserves she made to sell. And after we ceased to be children, we were indebted to her for many more important services. Such were the unusually fortunate circumstances of my early childhood. When 
I was six years old, my mother died. And then for the first time, I learned by the talk around me that I was a slave. My mother's mistress was the daughter of my grandmother's mistress. She was the foster sister of my mother. They were both nourished at my grandmother's breast. In fact, my mother had been weaned at three months old that the babe of the mistress might obtain sufficient food. They played together as children. And when they became women, my mother was a most faithful servant to her whiter foster sister. On her deathbed, her mistress promised that her children should never suffer for anything. And during her lifetime, she kept her word. They all spoke kindly of my dead mother, who had been a slave merely in name, but in nature was noble and womanly. I grieved for her, and my young mind was troubled with the thought who would now take care of me and my little brother. I was told that my home was now to be with her mistress, and I found it a happy one. No toilsome or disagreeable duties were imposed on me. My mistress was so kind to me that I was always glad to do her bidding, and proud to labor for her as much as my young years would permit. I would sit by her side for hours, sewing diligently, with a heart as free from care as that of any freeborn white child. When she thought I was tired, she would send me out to run and jump, and away I bounded, to gather berries or flowers to decorate her room. Those were happy days, too happy to last. The slave child had no thought for the morrow, but there came that blight which too surely waits on every human being born to be a chattel. When I was nearly twelve years old, my kind mistress sickened and died. As I saw the cheek grow paler and the eye more glassy, how earnestly I prayed in my heart that she might live. I loved her, for she had been almost like a mother to me. My prayers were not answered. She died, and they buried her in the little churchyard where, day after day, my tears fell upon her grave. I was sent to spend a week with my grandmother. I was now old enough to begin to think of the future, and again and again I asked myself what they would do with me. I felt sure I should never find another mistress so kind as the one who was gone. She had promised my dying mother that her children should never suffer for anything. And when I remembered that, and recalled her many proofs of attachment to me, I could not help having some hopes that she had left me free. My friends were almost certain it would be so. They thought she would be sure to do it on account of my mother's love and faithful service. But, alas, we all know that the memory of a faithful slave does not avail much to save her children from the auction block. After a brief period of suspense, the will of my mistress was read and we learned that she had bequeathed me to her sister's daughter, a child of five years old. So vanished our hopes. My mistress had taught me the precepts of God's word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. But I was her slave, and I suppose she did not recognize me as her neighbor. I would give much to blot out from my memory that one great wrong. As a child, I loved my mistress, and looking back on the happy days I spent with her, I try to think with less bitterness of this act of injustice. While I was with her, she taught me to read and spell, and for this privilege which so rarely falls to the lot of a slave, I bless her memory. She possessed but few slaves, and at her death, those were all distributed among her relatives, 
Five of them were my grandmother's children and had shared the same milk that nourished her mother's children. Notwithstanding my grandmother's long and faithful service to her owners, not one of her children escaped the auction block. These God-breathing machines are no more in the sight of their masters than the cotton they plant or the horses they tend. Chapter 2 The New Master and Mistress Dr. Flint, a physician in the neighborhood, had married the sister of my mistress, and I was now the property of their little daughter. It was not without murmuring that I prepared for my new home, and what added to my unhappiness was the fact that my brother William was purchased by the same family. My father, by his nature as well as by the habit of transacting business as a skillful mechanic, had more of the feelings of a free man than is common among slaves. My brother was a spirited boy, and being brought up under such influences, he daily detested the name of master and mistress. One day when his father and his mistress both happened to call him at the same time, he hesitated between the two, being perplexed to know which had the strongest claim upon his obedience. He finally concluded to go to his mistress. When my father reproved him for it, he said, "'You both called me, and I didn't know which I ought to go to first. "'You are my child,' replied our father, "'and when I call you, you should come immediately. "'If you have to pass through fire and water,' Poor Willie, he was now to learn his first lesson of obedience to a master. Grandmother tried to cheer us with hopeful words, and they found an echo in the credulous hearts of youth. When we entered our new home, we encountered cold looks, cold words, and cold treatment. We were glad when the night came. On my narrow bed, I moaned and wept, and I felt so desolate and alone. I had been there nearly a year when my dear little friend of mine was buried. I heard her mother sob as the clods fell on the coffin of her only child, and I turned away from the grave, feeling thankful that I still had something left to love. I met my grandmother, who said, Come with me, Linda. And from her tone, I knew that something sad had happened. She led me apart from the people and said, My child, your father is dead dead. How could I believe it? He had died so suddenly I had not even heard that he was sick. I went home with my grandmother. My heart rebelled against God, who had taken from me mother, father, mistress, and friend. The good grandmother tried to comfort me. Who knows the ways of God, said she. Perhaps they have been kindly taken from the evil days to come. Years afterwards, I often thought of this. She promised to be a mother to her grandchildren, so far as she might be permitted to do so, and strengthened by her love, I returned to my master's. I thought I should be allowed to go to my father's house the next morning, but I was ordered to go for flowers, that my mistress's house might be decorated for an evening party. I spent the day gathering flowers and weaving them into festoons while the dead body of my father was lying within a mile of me. What cared my owners for that? He was merely a piece of property. Moreover, they thought he had spoiled his children by teaching them to feel that they were human beings. This was blasphemous doctrine for a slave to teach, presumptuous in him, and dangerous to the masters. The next day I followed his remains to a humble grave beside that of my dear mother. 
There were those who knew my father's worth and respected his memory. My home now seemed more dreary than ever. The laugh of the little slave children sounded harsh and cruel. It was selfish to feel so about the joy of others. My brother moved about with a very grave face. I tried to comfort him by saying, Take courage, Willie. Brighter days will come by and by. You don't know anything about it, Linda, he replied. We shall have to stay here all our days. We shall never be free. I argued that we were growing older and stronger, and that perhaps we might, before long, be allowed to hire our own time. And then we could earn money to buy our freedom. William declared this was much easier to say than to do. Moreover, he did not intend to buy his freedom. We held daily controversies upon this subject. Little attention was paid to the slaves' meals in Dr. Flint's house. If they could catch a bit of food while it was going, well and good. I gave myself no trouble on that score, for on my various errands I passed my grandmother's house, where there was always something to spare for me. I was frequently threatened with punishment if I stopped there. And my grandmother, to avoid detaining me, often stood at the gate with something for my breakfast or dinner. I was indebted to her for all my comforts, spiritual or temporal. It was her labor that supplied my scanty wardrobe. I have a vivid recollection of the Lindsay Woolsey dress given me every winter by Mrs. Flint. How I hated it. It was one of the badges of slavery. While my grandmother was thus helping to support me from her hard earnings, the $300 she had lent her mistress were never repaid. When her mistress died, her son-in-law, Dr. Flint, was appointed executor. When grandmother applied to him for payment, he said the estate was insolvent and the law prohibited payment. It did not, however, prohibit him from retaining the silver candelabra, which had been purchased with that money. I presume they will be handed down in the family from generation to generation. My grandmother's mistress had always promised her that, at her death, she should be free. And it was said that, in her will, she made good the promise. But when the estate was settled, Dr. Flint told the faithful old servant that, under existing circumstances, it was necessary she should be sold. On the appointed day, the customary advertisement was posted up, proclaiming that there would be a public sale of Negroes, horses, and etc., Dr. Flint called to tell my grandmother that he was unwilling to wound her feelings by putting her up at an auction, and that he would prefer to dispose of her at private sale. My grandmother saw through his hypocrisy. She understood very well that he was ashamed of the job. She was a very spirited woman, and if he was base enough to sell her when her mistress intended she should be free, she was determined the public should know it. She had for a long time supplied many families with crackers and preserves. Consequently, Aunt Marthy, as she was called, was generally known, and everybody who knew her respected her intelligence and good character. Her long and faithful service in the family was also well known, and the intention of her mistress to leave her free. When the day of sale came, she took her place among the chattels, and at the first call she sprang upon the auction block. Many voices called out, Shame, shame, who is going to sell you, Aunt Marthy? Don't stand there, that is no place for you. Without saying a word, she quietly awaited her fate. No one bid for her, 
At last a feeble voice said, Fifty dollars. It came from a maiden lady, seventy years old, the sister of my grandmother's deceased mistress. She had lived forty years under the same roof with my grandmother. She knew how faithfully she had served her owners and how cruelly she had been defrauded of her rights, and she resolved to protect her. The auctioneer waited for a higher bid, but her wishes were respected. No one bid above her. She could neither read nor write, and when the bill of sale was made out, she signed it with a cross. But what consequence was that when she had a big heart overflowing with human kindness? She gave the old servant her freedom. At that time, my grandmother was just 50 years old. Laborious years had passed since then, and now my brother and I were slaves to the man who had defrauded her of her money and tried to defraud her of her freedom. One of my mother's sisters, called Aunt Nancy, was also a slave in his family. She was a kind, good aunt to me and, and supplied the place of both housekeeper and waiting maid to her mistress. She was, in fact, at the beginning and end of everything. Mrs. Flint, like many southern women, was totally deficient in energy. She had not strength to superintend her household affairs, but her nerves were so strong that she could sit in her easy chair and see a woman whipped till the blood trickled from her every stroke of the lash. She was a member of the church, but partaking of the Lord's Supper did not seem to put her in a Christian frame of mind. If dinner was not served at the exact time on that particular Sunday, she would station herself in the kitchen and wait till it was dished and spit in all the kettles and pans that had been used for cooking. She did this to prevent the cook and her children from eking out their meager fare with the remains of the gravy and other scrapings. The slaves could get nothing to eat except what she chose to give them. Provisions were weighed out by the pound and ounce three times a day. I can assure you she gave them no chance to eat wheat bread from her flour barrel. She knew how many biscuits a quart of flour would make and exactly what size they ought to be. Dr. Flint was an epicure. The cook never sent a dinner to his table without fear and trembling, for if there happened to be a dish not to his liking, he would either order her to be whipped or compel her to eat every mouthful of it in his presence. The poor hungry creature might not have objected to eating it, but she did not object to having her master cram it down her throat till she choked. They had a pet dog that was a nuisance in the house. The cook was ordered to make some Indian mush for him. He refused to eat, and when his head was held over it, the froth flowed from his mouth into the basin. He died a few minutes after. When Dr. Flint came in, he said the mush had not been well cooked, and that was the reason the animal would not eat it. He sent for the cook and compelled her to eat it. He thought that the woman's stomach was stronger than the dog's, but her sufferings afterwards proved that he was mistaken. This poor woman endured many cruelties from her master and mistress. Sometimes she was locked up, away from her nursing baby, for a whole day and night. When I had been in the family a few weeks, one of the plantation slaves was brought to town by order of his master. It was near night when he arrived, and Dr. Flint ordered him to be taken to the workhouse and tied up to the joist so that his feet would just escape the ground. In that situation, he was to wait till the doctor had taken his tea. I shall never forget that night. Never before in my life had I heard hundreds of blows fall in succession on a human being. 
his piteous groans and his oh pray don't massa rang in my ear for months afterwards there were many conjectures as to the cause of this terrible punishment some said master accused him of stealing corn others said the slave had quarreled with his wife in presence of the overseer and had accused his master of being the father of her child they were both black and the child was very fair I went into the workhouse next morning and saw the cowhide still wet with blood and the boards all covered with gore. The poor man lived and continued to quarrel with his wife. A few months afterwards, Dr. Flint handed them both over to a slave trader. The guilty man put their value into his pocket and had the satisfaction of knowing that they were out of sight and hearing. When the mother was delivered into the trader's hands, she said, You promised to treat me well. To which he replied, You have let your tongue run too far, damn you. She had forgotten that it was a crime for a slave to tell who was the father of her child. From others, then the master persecution also comes in such cases. I once saw a young slave girl dying soon after the birth of a child, nearly white. In her agony, she cried out, Oh Lord, come and take me. Her mistress stood by and mocked at her like an incarnate fiend. You suffer, do you? she exclaimed. I am glad of it. You deserve it all, and more, too. The girl's mother said, The baby is dead, thank God, and I hope my poor child will soon be in heaven, too. Heaven, retorted the mistress. There is no such place for the like of her and her bastard. The poor mother turned away, sobbing. Her dying daughter called her feebly, and as she bent over her, I heard her say, don't grieve so, mother. God knows all about it, and he will have mercy upon me. Her sufferings afterwards became so intense that her mistress felt unable to stay. But when she left the room, the scornful smile was still on her lips. Seven children called her mother. The poor black woman had but the one child, whose eyes she saw closing in death while she thanked God for taking her away from the greater bitterness of life. Chapter 3. The Slave's New Year's Day Dr. Flint owned a fine residence in town, several farms and about 50 slaves, besides hiring a number by the year. Hiring day at the South takes place on the 1st of January. On the 2nd, the slaves are expected to go to their new masters. On a farm, they work until the corn and cotton are laid. They then have two holidays. Some masters give them a good dinner under the trees. This over, they work until Christmas Eve. If no heavy charges are meantime brought against them, they are given four or five holidays, whichever the master or overseer may think proper. Then comes New Year's Eve, and they gather together their little alls, or more properly speaking, their little nothings, and wait anxiously for the dawning of day. At the appointed hour, the grounds are thronged with men, women, and children, waiting like criminals to hear their doom pronounced. The slave is sure to know who is the most humane or cruel master within forty miles of him. It is easy to find out on that day who clothes and feeds his slaves well, for he is surrounded by a crowd begging, Please, Massa, hire me this year. I will work very hard, Massa. If a slave is unwilling to go with his new master, he is whipped or locked up in jail until he consents to go and promises not to run away during the year. Should he chance to change his mind, thinking it justifiable to violate an extorted promise, 
woe unto him if he is caught. The whip is used till the blood flows at his feet, and his stiffened limbs are put in chains to be dragged in the field for days and days. If he lives until the next year, perhaps the same man will hire him again without even giving him an opportunity of going to the hiring ground. After those for hire are disposed of, those for sale are called up. Oh, you happy free women, contrast your New Year's Day with that of the poor bondwoman. With you it is a pleasant season and the light of the day is blessed. Friendly wishes meet you everywhere and gifts are showered upon you. Even hearts that have been estranged from you soften at this season. And lips that have been silent echo back, I wish you a happy New Year. Children bring their little offerings and raise their rosy lips for a caress. They are your own, and no hand but that of death can take them from you. But to the slave mother, New Year's Day comes laden with peculiar sorrows. She sits on her cold cabin floor watching the children who may all be torn from her the next morning. And often does she wish that she and they might die before the day dawns. She may be an ignorant creature degraded by the system that has brutalized her from childhood. But she is a mother's instincts and is capable of feeling a mother's agonies. On one of these sale days, I saw a mother lead seven children to the auction block. She knew that some of them would be taken from her, but they took all. The children sold to a slave trader, and their mother was bought by a man in her own town. Before night, her children were all far away. She begged the trader to tell her where he intended to take them. This he refused to do. How could he, when he knew he would sell them, one by one, wherever he could command the highest price? I met that mother in the street, and her wild, haggard face lives today in my mind. She wrung her hands in anguish and exclaimed, Gone! All gone! Why don't God kill me? I had no words wherewith to comfort her. Instances of this kind are of daily, yea, of hourly occurrence. Slaveholders have a method, peculiar to their institution, of getting rid of old slaves whose lives have been worn out in their service. I knew an old woman who, for seventy years, faithfully served her master. She had become almost helpless from hard labor and disease. Her owners moved to Alabama, and the old black woman was left to be sold to anybody who would give twenty dollars for her. Chapter 4 The Slave Who Dared to Feel Like a Man Two years had passed since I entered Dr. Flint's family, and those years had brought much of the knowledge that comes from experience, though they had afforded little opportunity for any other kinds of knowledge. My grandmother had, as much as possible, been a mother to her orphan grandchildren. By perseverance and unwearied industry, she was now mistress of a snug little home surrounded with the necessaries of life. She would have been happy could her children have shared them with her. There remained but three children and two grandchildren, all slaves. Most earnestly did she strive to make us feel that it was the will of God, and he had seen fit to place us under such circumstances. And though it seemed hard, we ought to pray for contentment. It was a beautiful faith coming from a mother who could not call her children her own. But I and Benjamin, her youngest boy, condemned it. We reasoned that 
it was much more the will of God that we should be situated as she was. We longed for a home like hers. There we always found sweet balsam for our troubles. She was so loving, so sympathizing. She always met us with a smile and listened with patience to all our sorrows. She spoke so hopefully that unconsciously the clouds gave place to sunshine. There was a grand big oven in there too that baked bread and nice things for the town, and we knew there was always a ch- and we knew there was always a choice bit in store for us. But alas, even the charms of the old oven failed to reconcile us to our hard lot. Benjamin was now a tall, handsome lad, strongly and gracefully made, and with a spirit too bold and daring for a slave. My brother William, now twelve years old, had the same aversion to the word master that he had when he was an urchin of seven years. I was his confidant. He came to me with all his troubles. I remember one instance in particular. It was on a lovely spring morning, and when I marked the sunlight dancing here and there, its beauty seemed to mock my sadness. For my master, whose restless, craving, vicious nature roved about day and night, seeking whom to devour, had just left me with stinging, scorching words—words words that scathed ear and brain like fire. Oh, how I despised him! I thought how glad I should be if some day, when he walked the earth, it would open and swallow him up and disencumber the world of a plague. When he told me that I was made for his use, made to obey his command in every thing, that I was nothing but a slave whose will must and should surrender to his, never before had my puny arm felt half so strong. So deeply was I absorbed in painful reflections afterwards that I neither saw nor heard the entrance of anyone till the voice of William sounded close beside me. Linda said, "He, what makes you look so sad? I love you." Oh, Linda, isn't this a bad world? Everybody seems so cross and unhappy. I wish I had died when poor father did. I told him that everybody was not cross or unhappy; that those who had pleasant homes and kind friends, and who were not afraid to love them, were happy. But we, who were slave children, without father or mother, could not expect to be happy. We must be good. Perhaps that would bring us contentment. Yes, he said. I try to be good, but what's the use? They are all the time troubling me. Then he proceeded to relate his afternoon's difficulty with young Master Nicholas. It seemed that the brother of Master Nicholas had pleased himself with making up stories about William. Master Nicholas said he should be flogged, and he would do it. Whereupon he went to work, but William fought bravely, and the young master, finding he was getting the better of him, undertook to tie his hands behind him. He failed in that likewise. By dint of kicking and fisting, William came out of the skirmish none the worse for a few scratches. He continued to discourse on his young master's meanness, how he whipped the little boys, but was a perfect coward when a tussle ensued between him and the white boys of his own size. On such occasions, he always took to his legs. William had other charges to make against him. One was rubbing up pennies with quicksilver. Passing them off for quarters of a dollar on an old man who kept a fruit stall, William was often sent to buy fruit, and he earnestly inquired of me what he ought to do under such circumstances. I told him it was certainly wrong to, to, to 
deceive the old man and that it was his duty to tell him of the impositions practiced by his young master. I assured him the old man would not be slow to comprehend the whole, and there the matter would end. William thought it might with the old man, but not with him. He said he did not mind the smart of the whip, but he did not like the idea of being whipped. While I advised him to be good and forgiving, I was not unconscious of the beam in my own eye. It was the very knowledge of my own shortcomings that urged me to retain, if possible, some sparks of my brother's God-given nature. I had not lived fourteen years in slavery for nothing. I had felt, seen, and heard enough to read the characters and question the motives of those around me. The war of my life had begun, and though one of God's most powerless creatures, I resolved never to be conquered. Alas, for me. If there was one pure, sunny spot for me, I believed it to be in Benjamin's heart, and in another's whom I loved with all the ardor of a girl's first love. My owner knew of it and sought in every way to render me miserable. He did not resort to corporal punishment, but to all the petty, tyrannical ways that human ingenuity could devise. I remember the first time I was punished. It was in the month of February. My grandmother had taken my old shoes and replaced them with a new pair. I needed them, for several inches of snow had fallen, and it still continued to fall. When I walked through Mrs. Flint's room, their creaking grated harshly on her refined nerves. She called me to her and asked what I had about me that made such a horrid noise. I told her it was my new shoes. Take them off, said she, and if you put them on again, I'll throw them into the fire. I took them off, and my stockings also. She then sent me a long distance on an errand. As I went through the snow, my bare feet tingled. That night I was very hoarse, and I went to bed thinking the next day would find me sick, perhaps dead. What was my grief on waking to find myself quite well? I had imagined, if I died or was laid up for some time, that my mistress would feel a twinge of remorse that she had so hated. The little imp, as she styled me. It was my ignorance of that mistress that gave rise to such extravagant imaginings. Dr. Flint occasionally had high prices offered for me, but he always said, She don't belong to me, she's my daughter's property, and I have no right to sell her. Good, honest man. My young mistress was still a child, and I could look for no protection from her. I loved her, and she returned my affection. I once heard her father allude to her attachment to me, and his wife promptly replied that it proceeded from fear. This put unpleasant doubts into my mind. Did the child feign what she did not feel? Or was her mother jealous of the might of love she bestowed on me? I concluded it must be the latter. I said to myself, Surely little children are true. One afternoon, I sat at my sewing, feeling unusual depression of spirits. My mistress had been accusing me of an offense of which I had assured her I was perfectly innocent, but I saw by the contemptuous curl of her lip that she believed I was telling a lie. I wondered for what wise purpose God was leading me through such thorny paths, and whether still darker days were in store for me. As I sat musing this, the door opened softly and William came in. Well, brother, said I, what is the matter this time? Oh, Linda, Ben and his master have had a dreadful time, said he. 
My first thought was that Benjamin was killed. Don't be frightened, Linda, said William. I will tell you all about it. It appeared that Benjamin's master had sent for him, and he did not immediately obey the summons. When he did, his master was angry and began to whip him. He resisted. Master and slave fought, and finally the master was thrown. Benjamin had cause to tremble, for he had thrown to the ground his master, one of the richest men in town. I anxiously awaited the result. That night I stole to my grandmother's house, and Benjamin also stole thither from his master's. My grandmother had gone to spend a day or two with an old friend living in the country. I have come, said Benjamin, to tell you goodbye. I'm going away. I inquired where. To the north, he replied. I looked at him to see whether he was in earnest. I saw it all in his firm, set mouth. I implored him not to go. But he paid no heed to my words. He said he was no longer a boy, and every day made his yoke more galling. He had raised his hand against his master and was to be publicly whipped for the offense. I reminded him of the poverty and hardships he must encounter among strangers. I told him he might be caught and brought back. And that was terrible to think of. He grew vexed and asked if poverty and hardships with freedom were not preferable to our treatment in slavery. Linda, he continued, we're dogs here. Footballs, cattle, everything that's mean. No, I will not stay. Let them bring me back. We don't die but once. He was right. But it was hard to give him up. Go, said I, and break your mother's heart. I repented of my words ere they were out. Linda, said he, speaking as I had not heard him speak that evening. How could you say that? Poor mother, be kind to her, Linda, and you too, cousin Fanny. Cousin Fanny was a friend who had lived some years with us. Farewells were exchanged, and the bright, kind boy, endeared to us by so many acts of love, vanished from our sight. It is not necessary to state how he made his escape. Suffice it to say, he was on his way to New York when a violent storm overtook the vessel. The captain said he must put into the nearest port. This alarmed Benjamin, who was aware that he would be advertised in every port near his own town. His embarrassment was noticed by the captain. To port they went. There the advertisement met the captain's eye. Benjamin so exactly answered its description that the captain laid hold on him and bound him in chains. The storm passed, and they proceeded to New York. Before reaching that port, Benjamin managed to get off his chains and throw them overboard. He escaped from the vessel but was pursued, captured, and carried back to his master. When my grandmother returned home and found her youngest child had fled, great was her sorrow, but with characteristic piety she said, God's will be done. Each morning she inquired if any news had been heard from her boy. Yes, news was heard. The master was rejoicing over a letter announcing the capture of his human chattel. That day seems but as yesterday, so well do I remember it. I saw him led through the streets in chains to jail. His face was ghastly pale, yet full of determination. He had begged one of the sailors to go to his mother's house and ask her not to meet him. He said the sight of her distress would take from him all self-control. She yearned to see him, and she went. 
but she screened herself in the crowd that it might be as her child had said. We were not allowed to visit him, but we had known the jailer for years and he was a kind-hearted man. At midnight, he opened the jail door for my grandmother and myself to enter in disguise. When we entered the cell, not a sound broke the stillness. Benjamin, Benjamin, whispered my grandmother. No answer. Benjamin. She again faltered. There was a jingle of chains. The moon had just risen and cast an uncertain light through the bars of the window. We knelt down and took Benjamin's cold hands in ours. We did not speak. Sobs were heard, and Benjamin's lips were unsealed, for his mother was weeping on his neck. How vividly does memory bring back that sad night? Mother and son talked together. He asked her pardon for the suffering he had caused her. She said she had nothing to forgive. She could not blame his desire for freedom. He told her that when he was captured, he broke away and was about casting himself into the river when thoughts of her came over him, and he desisted. She asked if he did not also think of God. I fancied I saw his face grow fierce in the moonlight. He answered, No, I did not think of him. When a man is hunted like a wild beast, he forgets there is a God, a heaven. He forgets everything in his struggle to get beyond the reach of the bloodhounds. Don't talk so, Benjamin, said she. Put your trust in God. Be humble, my child, and your master will forgive you. Forgive me for what, mother? For not letting him treat me like a dog? No, I will never humble myself to him. I have worked for him for nothing all my life, and I am repaid with stipes, with stripes and imprisonment. Here I will stay till I die, or till he sells me. The poor mother shuddered at his words. I think he felt it. For when he next spoke, his voice was calmer. Don't fret about me, mother. I ain't worth it, said he. I wish I had some of your goodness. You bear everything patiently, just as though you thought it was all right. I wish I could. She told him she had not always been so. Once she was like him. But when sore troubles came upon her and she had no arm to lean upon, she learned to call on God, and he lightened her burdens. She besought him to do likewise. We overstayed our time and were obliged to hurry from the jail. Benjamin had been imprisoned three weeks when my grandmother went to intercede for him with his master. He was immovable. He said Benjamin should serve as an example to the rest of his slaves. He should be kept in jail till he was subdued or be sold if he got but one dollar for him. However, he afterwards relented in some degree. The chains were taken off and we were allowed to visit him. As his food was of the coarsest kind, we carried him as often as possible a warm supper, accompanied with some little luxury for the jailer. Three months elapsed, and there was no prospect of release or of a purchaser. One day he was heard to sing and laugh. This piece of indecorum was sold to his master, and the overseer was ordered to rechain him. He was now confined in an apartment with other prisoners, who were covered with filthy rags. Benjamin was chained near them and was soon covered with vermin. He worked at his chains till he succeeded in getting out of them. He passed them through the bars of the window with a request that they should be taken to his master, and he should be informed that he was covered with vermin. This audacity was punished with heavier chains and prohibition of our visits. 
My grandmother continued to send him fresh changes of clothes. The old ones were burned up. The last night we saw him in jail, his mother still begged him to send for his master and beg his pardon. Neither persuasion nor argument could turn him from his purpose. He calmly answered, I am waiting his time. Those chains were mournful to hear. Another three months passed, and Benjamin left his prison walls. We that loved him waited to bid him a long and last farewell. A slave trader had bought him. You remember, I told you what price he bought when ten years of age. Now he was more than twenty years old and sold for three hundred dollars. The master had been blind to his own interest. Long confinement had made his face too pale, his form too thin. Moreover, the trader had heard something of his character, and it did not strike him as suitable for a slave. He said he would give any price if the handsome lad was a girl. We thanked God that he was not. Could you have seen that mother clinging to her child when they fastened the irons upon his wrists? Could you have heard her heart-rending groans and seen her bloodshot eyes wander wildly from face to face, vainly pleading for mercy? Could you have witnessed that scene as I saw it? You would exclaim, Slavery is damnable. Benjamin, her youngest, her pet, was forever gone. She could not realize it. She had had an interview with the trader for the purpose of ascertaining if Benjamin could be purchased. She was told it was impossible as he had given bonds not to sell him till he was out of the state. He promised that he would not sell him till he reached New Orleans. With a strong arm and unvaried trust, my grandmother began her work of love. Benjamin must be free. If she succeeded, she knew they would still be separated, but the sacrifice was not too great. Day and night, she labored. The trader's price would treble that he gave, but she was not discouraged. She employed a lawyer to write to a gentleman whom she knew in New Orleans. She begged him to interest himself for Benjamin, and he willingly favored her request. When he saw Benjamin and stated his business, he thanked him, but said he preferred to wait a while before making the trader an offer. He knew he had tried to obtain a high price for him, and had invariably failed. This encouraged him to make another effort for freedom. So one morning, long before day, Benjamin was missing. He was riding Hello. over the blue billows, bound for Baltimore. <clears throat> nope. For once, his white face did him a kindly service. They had no suspicion that it belonged to a slave. Otherwise, the law would have been followed out to the letter. We recorded thing something on my podcast. Slavery. Sitting here trying the brightest to skies are often overshadowed by okay. the darkest clouds. Benjamin was taken sick and compelled to remain in Baltimore three weeks. His strength was slow in returning, and his desire to continue his journey seemed to retard his, his recovery. How could he get strength without air and exercise? In a well-furnished dining parlor Uncle Tom's in the town what I want a lot of people to understand is that we no have been raised to, to misunderstand this story. That Uncle Tom was a bad person. Uncle Tom was not a bad person. The master and another slave 
whose name you will find were the bad characters. So when a lot of people are angry at black men who seem to be white or whatever, they call him Uncle Tom. But Uncle Tom is not, is actually a compliment. Uncle Tom was a hero to black people. In fact, Uncle Tom's slave master implored another slave to whip and beat Uncle Tom every night because he would not bow down.
said the traitor jocularly. And then I'm ready to do anything in reason to oblige friends, but this, yar, you see, is a little too hard on a fellow. A little too hard. The traitor sighed contemplatively and poured out some more brandy. Well then, Haley, how will you trade? said Mr. Shelby after an uneasy interval of silence. Well, haven't you a boy or a gal that you could throw in with Tom? None that I could well spare. To tell the truth, it's only hard necessity makes me willing to sell it all. I don't like parting with any of my hands, that's a fact. Here the door opened, and a small quadroon boy, between four and five years of age, entered the room. There was something in his appearance remarkably beautiful and engaging. His black hair, fine as floss silk, hung in glossy curls about his round, dimpled face, while a pair of large, dark eyes, full of fire and softness, looked out from beneath the rich, long lashes as he peered curiously into the apartment. A gay robe of scarlet and yellow plaid, carefully made and neatly fitted, set off to advantage the dark and rich style of his beauty, and a certain comic air of assurance, blended with bashfulness, showed that he had been not unused to being petted and noticed by his master. "'Hello, Jim Crow,' said Mr. Shelby, whistling and snapping a bunch of raisins towards him. "'Pick that up now.' The child scampered with all his little strength after the prize, while his master laughed. "'Come here, Jim Crow,' said he. The child came up, and the master patted the curly head and chucked him under the chin. "'Now, Jim, show this gentleman how you can dance and sing.' The boy commenced one of those wild, grotesque songs common among the Negroes, in a rich, clear voice, accompanying his singing with many comic evolutions of the hands, feet, and whole body, in all perfect time to the music. Bravo, said Haley, throwing him a quarter of an orange. Now, Jim, walk like old Uncle Cudjo when he has the rheumatism, said his master. Instantly, the flexible limbs of the child assumed the appearance of deformity and distortion as, with his back humped up and his master's yeah. stick in his hand, he hobbled about the room, his childish face drawn into a doleful pucker and spitting from right to left in imitation of an old man. Both gentlemen laughed uproariously. <laughs> now, Jim, said his master, show us how old Elder Robbins leads the psalm. The boy drew his chubby face down to a formidable length and commenced toning a psalm tune through his nose with imperturbable gravity. Hurrah, bravo! What a yarn, said Haley. That chap's a case, I'll promise. Tell you what, he said, suddenly clapping his hand on Mr. Shelby's shoulder. Fling in that chap and I'll settle the business, I will. Come now, if that ain't doing the thing up about the rightest. At this moment, the door was pushed gently open, and a young quadroon woman, apparently about twenty-five, entered the room. There needed only a glance from the child to her to identify her as its mother. There was the same rich, full, dark eye with its long lashes, the same ripples of silky black hair. The brown of her complexion gave way on the cheek to a perceptible flush, which deepened as she saw the gaze of the strange man fixed upon her in bold and undisguised admiration. Her dress was of the neatest possible fit, and set off to advantage her finely molded shape. A delicately formed hand and a trim foot and ankle were items of appearance that did not escape the quick eye of the trader, well used to run up at a glance the points of a fine female article. 
Well, Eliza, said her master as she stopped and looked hesitatingly at him. I was looking for Harry, please, sir. And the boy bounded toward her, showing his spoils, which he had gathered in the skirt of his robe. Well, take him away, then, said Mr. Shelby, and hastily she withdrew, carrying the child on her arm. By Jupiter, said the trader, turning to him in admiration, there's an article now. You might make your fortune on that our gal in Orleans any day. I've seen over a thousand in my day paid down for gals, not a bit handsomer. I don't want to make my fortune on her, said Mr. Shelby dryly, and seeking to turn the conversation, he uncorked a bottle of fresh wine and asked his companion's opinion of it. Capital, sir, first chop, said the trader. Then, turning and slapping his hand familiarly on Shelby's shoulder, he added, Come, how will you trade about the gal? What shall I say for her? What will you take? Mr. Haley, she is not to be sold, said Shelby. My wife would not part with her for her weight in gold. Aye, aye, women always say such things, because they hadn't no sort of calculation. Just show them how many watches, feathers, and trinkets one's weight in gold would buy, and that alters the case, I reckon. I tell you, Haley, this must not be spoken of. I say no, and I mean no, said Shelby decidedly. Well, you'll let me have the boy, though, said the trader. You must own I've come down pretty handsomely for him. What on earth can you want with a child, said Shelby? Why, I've got a friend that's going into this yard branch of the business, wants to buy up handsome boys to raise for the market. Fancy articles entirely, sell for waiters and so on to richens that can pay for handsome ones. It sets off one of your great places, a real handsome boy to open door, wait, and tend. They fetch a good sum, and this little devil is such a comical musical concern, he's just the article. I would rather not sell him, said Mr. Shelby thoughtfully. The fact is, sir, I'm a humane man, and I hate to take the boy from his mother, sir. Oh, you do? La, yes, something of that are natter. Uh, I understand perfectly. It is mighty unpleasant getting on with women sometimes. I always hates these yar screeching, screaming times. They are mighty unpleasant. But as I manage this business, I generally avoid them, sir. Now, what if you get the girl off for a day or a week or so? Then the thing's done quietly, all over before she comes home. Your wife might get her some earrings or a new gown or some such truck uh, to make up with her. I'm afraid not. Lord bless you, yes. These critters ain't like white folks, you know. They gets over things, only manage right. Now, they say, said Haley, assuming a candid and confidential air, that this kind of trade is hardening to the feelings. But I never found it so. Fact is, I never could do things up the way some fellers manage the business. I've seen them as would pull a woman's child out of her arms and set him up to sell, and she's screeching like mad all the time. Very bad policy. Damages the article. Makes him quite unfit for service sometimes. I knew a real handsome gal once in Orleans, as was entirely ruined by this sort of handling. The fellow that was trading for her didn't want her baby, and she was one of your real high sort when her blood was up. I tell you, she squeezed up her child in her arms and talked and went on real awful. It kind of makes my blood run cold to think of it. And when they carried off the child and locked her up, she just went raving mad and died in a week. 
severe waste, sir, of a thousand dollars just for want of management. There's where it is. It's always best to do the humane thing, sir. That's been my experience. And the trader leaned back in his chair and folded his arm with an air of virtuous decision, apparently considering himself a second Wilberforce. The subject appeared to interest the gentleman deeply, for while Mr. Shelby was thoughtfully peeling an orange, Haley broke out afresh with becoming diffidence, but as if actually driven by the force of truth to say a few words more. It don't look well now for a feller to be praising himself, but I say it just because it's the truth. I believe I'm reckoned to bring in about the finest droves of niggers that is brought in. At least, I've been told so. If I have once, I reckon I have a hundred times. All in good case, fat and likely, and I lose as few as any man in the business. And I lays it all to my management, sir. And humanity, sir, I may say, is the great pillar of my management. Mr. Shelby did not know what to say, and so he said, Indeed. Now, I've been laughed at for my notions, sir, and I've been talked to. Uh, they ain't popular, and they ain't common, but I stuck to them, sir. I've stuck to them, and realized well on them. Yes, sir, they have paid their passage, I may say. And the trader laughed at his joke. There was something so piquant and original in these elucidations of humanity that Mr. Shelby could not help laughing in company. Perhaps you laugh too, dear reader, but you know humanity comes out in a variety of strange forms nowadays, and there is no end to the odd things that humane people will say and do. Mr. Shelby's laugh encouraged the trader to proceed. It's strange now, but I never could beat this into people's heads. Now, there was Tom Loker, my old partner, down in Natchez. He was a clever fellow, Tom was, only the very devil with niggers. On principle, twas, you see, for a better-hearted feller never broke bread. Twas his system, sir. I used to talk to Tom. Why, Tom, I used to say, when your gals take on and cry, what's the use of cracking on em over the head and knocking on em round? It's ridiculous, says I, and don't do no sort of good. Why, I don't see no harm in their crying, says I. It's Nater, says I, and if Nater can't blow off one way, it will another. Besides, Tom, says I, it just smiles your gals. They get sickly and down in the mouth, and sometimes they get ugly, particularly yellow gals do, and it's the devil and all getting on them broke in. Now, says I, why can't you kinder coax them up and speak them fair? Depend on it, Tom, a little humanity thrown in along goes a heap further than all your jawing and cracking, and it pays better, says I, depend on it. But Tom couldn't get the hang on it, and he smiled so many for me that I had to break off with him, though he was a good-hearted fellow and as fair a business hand as is going. And do you find your ways of managing do the business better than Tom's, said Mr. Shelby? Why, yes, sir, I may say so. You see, when I anyways can, I takes a little care about the unpleasant parts, like selling young'uns and that, Get the gals out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, you know. And when it's clean done and can't be helped, they naturally gets used to it. Taint, you know, as if it was white folks that's brought up in the way of expected to keep their children and wives and all that. Niggers, you know, that's fetched up properly. And no kind of expectations of no kind. So all these things comes easier. 
I'm afraid mine are not properly brought up then, said Mr. Shelby. Suppose not. You Kentucky folks smile your niggers. You mean well by them, but taint no real kindness after all. Now, a nigger, you see, what's got to be hacked and tumbled around the world and sold to Tom and Dick and the Lord knows who, taint no kindness to be given on him notions and expectations and bringing on him up too well, for the rough and tumble comes all the harder on him arter. Now, I venture to say your niggers would be quite chot fallen in a place where some of your plantation niggers would be singing and whooping like all possessed. Every man, you know, Mr. Shelby, naturally thinks well on his own ways. And I think I treat niggers just about as well as it's ever worthwhile to treat them. It's a happy thing to be satisfied, said Mr. Shelby with a slight shrug and some perceptible feelings of a disagreeable nature. Well, said Haley, after they had both silently picked their nuts for a season, what do you say? I'll think the matter over and talk with my wife, said Mr. Shelby. Meantime, Haley, if you want the matter carried on in the quiet way you speak of, you'd best not let your business in this neighborhood be known. It will get out among my boys, and it will not be a particularly quiet business getting away any of my fellows if they know it. I'll promise you. Oh, certainly, by all means, Mum, of course. Uh, but I'll tell you, I'm in a devil of a hurry and shall want to know as soon as possible what I may depend on, said he, rising and putting on his overcoat. Well, call up this evening between six and seven, and you shall have my answer, said Mr. Shelby, and the trader bowed himself out of the apartment. I'd like to have been able to kick the fellow down the steps, said he to himself as he saw the door fairly closed with his impudent assurance, but he knows how much he has me at advantage. If anybody had ever said to me that I should sell Tom down south to one of those rascally traders, I should have said, Is thy servant a dog that he should do this thing? And now it must come for aught I see. And Eliza's child, too. I know that I shall have some fuss with wife about that, and for that matter about Tom, too. So much for being in debt. Hey, oh, the fellow sees his advantage and means to push it. Perhaps the mildest form of the system of slavery is to be seen in the state of Kentucky. The general prevalence of agricultural pursuits of a quiet and gradual nature, not requiring those periodic seasons of hurry and pressure that are called for in the business of more southern districts, makes the task of the Negro a more healthful and reasonable one. While the master, content with a more gradual style of acquisition, has not those temptations to hard-heartedness which always overcome frail human nature when the prospect of sudden and rapid gain is weighed in the balance, with no heavier counterpoise than the interests of the helpless and unprotected. Whoever visits some estates there and witnesses the good-humored indulgence of some masters and mistresses, and the affectionate loyalty of some slaves, might be tempted to dream the oft-fabled poetic legend of a patriarchal institution and all that, but over and above the scene there broods a portentous shadow, the shadow of law. So long as the law considers all these human beings with beating hearts and living affections only as so many things belonging to a master, so long as the failure or misfortune or imprudence or death of the kindest owner may cause them any day to exchange a life of kind protection and indulgence for one of hopeless misery and toil. So long it is impossible to make anything beautiful or desirable in 
best regulated administration of slavery. Mr. Shelby was a fair, average kind of man, good-natured and kindly, and disposed to easy indulgence of those around him, and there had never been a lack of anything which might contribute to the physical comfort of the Negroes on his estate. He had, however, speculated largely and quite loosely, had involved himself deeply, and his notes to a large amount had come into the hands of Haley, and this small piece of information is the key to the preceding conversation. Now, it had so happened that, in approaching the door, Eliza had caught enough of the conversation to know that a trader was making offers to her master for somebody. She would gladly have stopped at the door to listen as she came out, but her mistress just then calling, she was obliged to hasten away. Still, she thought she heard the trader make an offer for her boy. Could she be mistaken? Her heart swelled and throbbed, and she involuntarily strained him so tight that the little fellow looked up into her face in astonishment. Eliza, girl, what ails you today? said her mistress when Eliza had upset the wash pitcher, knocked down the workstand, and finally was abstractedly offering her mistress a long nightgown in place of the silk dress she had ordered her to bring from the wardrobe. Eliza started. Oh, missus, she said, raising her eyes. Then, bursting into tears, she sat down in a chair and began sobbing. Why, Eliza, child, what ails you? said her mistress. Oh, missus, missus, said Eliza. There's been a traitor talking with master in the parlor. I heard him. Well, silly child, suppose there was. Oh, missus, do you suppose master would sell my Harry? And the poor creature threw herself into a chair and sobbed convulsively. Sell him? No, you foolish girl. You know your master never deals with those southern traders, and never means to sell any of his servants, as long as they behave well. Why, you silly child, who do you think would want to buy your Harry? Do you think all the world are set on him as you are, you goosey? Come, cheer up and hook my dress. There now, put my back hair up in that pretty braid you learned the other day, and don't go listening at doors any more. Well, but, Mrs., you never would give your consent to, to, nonsense, child, to be sure I shouldn't. What do you talk so for? I would as soon have one of my own children sold. But really, Eliza, you are getting altogether too proud of that little fellow. A man can't put his nose into the door, but you think he must be coming to buy him. Reassured by her mistress's confident tone, Eliza proceeded nimbly and adroitly with her toilet, laughing at her own fears as she proceeded. Mrs. Shelby was a woman of high class, both intellectually and morally. To that natural magnanimity and generosity of mind which one often marks as characteristic of the women of Kentucky, she added high moral and religious sensibility and principle, carried out with great energy and ability into practical results. Her husband, who made no professions to any particular religious character, nevertheless reverenced and respected the consistency of hers, and stood perhaps a little in awe of her opinion. Certain it was that he gave her unlimited scope in all her benevolent efforts for the comfort, instruction, and improvement of her servants, though he never took any decided part in them himself. In fact, if not exactly a believer in the doctrine of the efficiency of the extra good works of saints, he really seemed somehow or other to fancy that his wife had piety and benevolence enough for two, to indulge a shadowy expectation of getting into heaven through her superabundance of qualities to which he made no particular pretension. The 
heaviest load on his mind after his conversation with the trader lay in the foreseen necessity of breaking to his wife the arrangement contemplated, meeting the importunities and opposition which he knew he should have reason to encounter. Mrs. Shelby, being entirely ignorant of her husband's embarrassments, and knowing only the general kindliness of his temper, had been quite sincere in the entire incredulity with which she had met Eliza's suspicions. In fact, she dismissed the matter from her mind, without a second thought, and, being occupied in preparations for an evening visit, it passed out of her thoughts entirely. End of chapter one. Chapter two. The mother. Eliza had been brought up by her mistress, from girlhood, as a petted and indulged favorite. The traveler in the South must often have remarked that peculiar air of refinement, that softness of voice and manner, which seems in many cases to be a particular gift to the quadroon and mulatto women. These natural graces in the quadroon are often united with beauty of the most dazzling kind, and in almost every case with a personal appearance prepossessing and agreeable. Eliza, such as we have described her, is not a fancy sketch, but taken from remembrance as we saw her years ago in Kentucky. Safe under the protecting care of her mistress, Eliza had reached maturity without those temptations which make beauty so fatal an inheritance to a slave. She had been married to a bright and talented young mulatto man was a slave on a neighboring estate, and bore the name of George Harris. This young man had been hired out by his master to work in a bagging factory, where his adroitness and ingenuity caused him to be considered the first hand in the place. He had invented a machine for the cleaning of the hemp, which, considering the education and circumstances of the inventor, displayed quite as much mechanical genius as Whitney's cotton gin. Note, a machine of this description was really the invention of a young colored man in Kentucky, Mrs. Stowe's note. He was possessed of a handsome person and pleasing manners, and was a general favorite in the factory. Nevertheless, as this young man was in the eye of the law not a man but a thing, all these superior qualifications were subject to the control of a vulgar, narrow-minded, tyrannical master. This same gentleman, having heard of the fame of George's invention, took a ride over to the factory to see what this intelligent chattel had been about. He was received with great enthusiasm by the employer, who congratulated him on possessing so valuable a slave. He was waited upon over the factory, shown the machinery by George, who, in high spirits, talked so fluently, held himself so erect, looked so handsome and manly, that his master began to feel an uneasy consciousness of inferiority. What business had this slave to be marching round the country, inventing machines, and holding up his head among gentlemen? He'd soon put a stop to it. He'd take him back, and put him to hoeing and digging, and see if he'd step about so smart. Accordingly, the manufacturer and all hands concerned were astounded when he suddenly demanded George's wages, and announced his intention of taking him home. But, uh, Mr. Harris, remonstrated the manufacturer, isn't this uh, rather sudden? What if it is? Isn't the man mine? We would be willing, sir, to increase the rate of compensation. No object at all, sir. I don't need to hire any of my hands out, unless I have a mind to. But, sir, he seems peculiarly adapted to this business. Dare say he may be. 
never was much adapted to anything that I set him about, I'll be bound. But only think of his inventing this machine, interposed one of the workmen rather unluckily. Oh yes, a machine for saving work, is it? He'd invent that, I'll be bound. Let a nigger alone for that any time. They are all labor-saving machines themselves, every one of them. No, he shall tramp. George had stood like one transfixed, at hearing his doom thus suddenly pronounced by a power that he knew was irresistible. He folded his arms, tightly pressed in his lips, but a whole volcano of bitter feelings burned in his bosom and sent streams of fire through his veins. He breathed short, and his large, dark eyes flashed like live coals, and he might have broken out into some dangerous ebullition had not the kindly manufacturer touched him on the arm and said in a low tone, Way, George, go with him for the present. We'll try to help you yet. The tyrant observed the whisper and conjectured its import, though he could not hear what was said, and he inwardly strengthened himself in his determination to keep the power he possessed over his victim. George was taken home and put to the meanest drudgery of the farm. He had been able to repress every disrespectful word, but the flashing eye, the gloomy and troubled brow, were part of a natural language that could not be repressed. Indubitable signs which showed and could not become a thing. It was during the happy... You know this voice. Welcome to the stage. Dave Chappelle. To be able to do something like this for 30 years. I've got to be one of the luckiest people alive, man. I don't know that I've ever really had a any other job. How old were you when you made your first TV development deal? 19. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. Right. <laughs> so I was really breaking from tradition. And um, it was like a graduation lunch we were having and they had my dad come and talk to me, and my dad takes me outside, and he's like, listen, this is some advice that applies to all of you acting students. He says, to be an actor is a lonely life. Everybody wants to make it, and you might not make it. And I said to my dad, well, well that depends on what making it is, Dad. Smart-ass smart kid. Yeah. It depends on what making it is, Dad. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're a teacher. I said, if I could make a teacher's salary doing comedy, I think that's better than being a teacher. And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of there. was in that chair we talked about blue streak i loved it he played a role in your life i believe how do you feel about him as a person as an artist martin lawrence is the guy that showed everybody you can make it from dc to hollywood and uh i had a personal stake in his success every time he did something it made me feel inspired and really good and he was always real nice to me he'd sit me down what's going on with you baby boy what what talk about comedy whatever and, uh, you know, when we did Blue Streak, we were promoting it. 
And Martin had a stroke. He almost died. And then after that, I saw him. And I was like, oh my God, Martin, are you okay? And he said, I got the best sleep I ever got in my life. That's how tough he is. So let me ask you this. What is happening in Hollywood that a guy that tough will be on the street waving a gun, screaming, they are trying to kill me? What's going on? Why is Dave Chappelle going to Africa? Why does Mariah Carey make a $100 million deal and take clothes off on TRL? A weak person cannot get to sit here and talk to you. Ain't no weak people talking to you. So what is happening in Hollywood? Nobody knows. The worst thing to call somebody is crazy, is dismissive. I don't understand this person, so they're crazy. That's bullshit. These people are not crazy. They're strong people. Maybe the environment is a little sick. tired of the media spinning the truth and pushing false narratives? Well, take a look at this. Over the last three years, while the establishment media was pushing false narratives and uncorroborated evidence, we investigated and shed light on some of the deepest government corruption in this nation. Something that makes Watergate look like nothing in comparison. Right now, we have a interesting story about a young man who decided he was going to kill and eat some people. Hold on. Yes, I said eat some people. Right. That uh, I know of. You know, and I have 
We'll say, I think the only thing he has on him is a pocket knife switchblade. Young man beating up a woman across the street. Okay, are they outside or in a house? It's in a garage. Okay, can you tell if he has any weapons? Um, I think he had a knife, but I'm not positive. Okay, can you tell if she's injured or he's injured? Are, are either of them injured? Can you tell from where you are? Yes, there's a girl laying on the ground. He beat her up. I ran over there. I'm bleeding profusely here at the moment. Okay. I don't know what happened. All right. Can you tell if she's out. conscious or is she unconscious? Say again. Can you tell if she's conscious? No, it does not appear so, no. Okay. And how? what kind of injuries do you have? Uh, I've been stabbed in the back. With a knife? Yes, I believe so. It was tough okay. to tell. Okay, you can tell how long it was or anything? Can you ambulance? Yeah, we're quickly. sending them. We're sending them. And where is he? Is he yeah, I think in the area still? Right across the street from my house. All right. What's your name? Okay. All right, we're going to get the paramedics right out there. Sir, sir, what did the guy look like? Was he white, black, Hispanic? He is white. You know how old he is? He's about 25 years old. What was he wearing? Um, short, a t-shirt. Do you know who he is? I have no idea. Does he live at that house, or? No, he does not. Did the female look familiar to you? Um, I believe it was the daughter of the house that lives over there. I'm not positive. have your wife or I don't want you moving if you've been stabbed but I can you have your wife or someone look out and see if he's still there um I don't know see if that car is still there huh? it appears he's still there and you, you said you, you definitely saw a knife and that's what he hit you with in the back no I did not see it but my wife looking in my back and it appears I got punctured yes family. 
Michelle had actually been one of five children who had been born in North Miami Beach. She'd attended Virginia A. Boone Highland Oaks Elementary, followed by Highland Oaks Middle School, North Miami Beach Senior High, before finally going on to study at Florida State University. John, on the other hand, had been born in South Miami-Dade and had attended Miami Killen High School before going on to work. John had loved going out on the water since he was a child and his passion was shared by Michelle and it was one of those things that the couple bonded over. Besides fishing and going out on the water, John also boxed as one of his hobbies. The pair had married on the 9th of June 1997, the same year that they started seeing each other, and it was clear to everyone that met the couple that they were so deeply in love with one another. In 2007, the couple decided to transform the garage of the home they shared into Kester, Florida, into a place where family and friends could come and hang out together. The Garage Mahal by John and Michelle featured three couches, a flat screen TV, coffee table, cigar cases, a barbecue grill, ice maker, dartboards, and beach themed decoration. The only rule was, if the garage door is open, you're welcome to join us. The Garage Mahal was a place where many events were hosted, including uh, John's son from his first marriage's best friend's uh, last-minute bachelor party. More often than not, John and Michelle would eat their dinner in the Garage Mahal and watch TV there, often being joined by family and friends and neighbours. They opened their arms to anybody who might want to join them, and that only goes to show the open, loving nature that they both shared. Michelle had worked at the Northwestern Mutual Striano Financial Group for 15 years, with John operating his own landscaping company before retiring. After retiring, John went out in his boat to fish with his wife almost every single day. He was in the prime of his life. John actually had two children from a previous marriage who by the time of the tragedy in 2016 were fully grown adults and had their own family. And Michelle loved them as much as she would if they were her own. John's son, John Stevens IV, who lived in Kansas, had just had a baby with his wife and they had intended to bring the baby to Florida for the baby's baptism and so that the baby could meet his grandparents, John and Michelle. And John and Michelle were over the moon at the birth of their grandchild and they were so, so excited to see them. John was trying looking to understand forward why to the day this that he could take his grandchild out on the boat to go fishing, just like he had done with his son. Jesus. But that day would never come for the Stevens family, as John and Michelle would fall victim to a random and brutal attack. To understand what exactly happened on the day of the tragedy, we first have to take a look at the events leading up to it, and we have to understand... When you make more, you make more gifts and wows. You make more statements, keepsakes, and messes. The more you make, the more we can help. And now you can earn $5 in Michael's rewards when you spend $25 or more. Michael's, made by you. Everything's starting to look the same. At CarGurus, we give every car a deal rating from overpriced to great deal. But only when it's really great. Only 3 out of 10 cars are rated a good deal or higher. Start your search. Find your deal. CarGurus.
understand who exactly Austin Harouf is. Austin Kelly Harouf was born on the 21st of December 1996 in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida to parents Wade Harouf and Nina Harouf. Austin was the couple's first child, though when Austin was one years old, Mina gave birth to a second child, a daughter, whose name I've omitted from this episode for privacy reasons. Austin and his sister were both raised as Presbyterian, although it didn't seem as if they attended church often, so I wouldn't say that they were strict, uh, raised, raised strictly religious. Unfortunately, when Austin was 13 years old, his parents divorced after years of heated arguments and a period of separation. Austin and his sister remained living with their mother, though they would go and visit their father quite often. Their father would take them out for dinner and take them out to do other activities. Austin would later describe his father Wade as being a dentist who was different, kind of loud, a redneck. He further described Wade as being a nice guy who had a temper sometimes. Wade and Austin would go out fishing when Austin was younger, which was something that Austin didn't really enjoy, though as he grew up, he began to enjoy those activities with his father more and more. His father had started seeing a woman in recent years, and I've also chosen to omit this girlfriend's name from this episode for privacy reasons, but I will refer to her as Wade's girlfriend or his father's girlfriend in this video, and Wade's girlfriend ultimately moved in with Wade. Austin's mother Mina, on the other hand, was a very loving, very nice and kind and very motherly woman, according to Austin. She would make them clean the house a lot, though I imagine these chores are no more than what would be set in a regular household. Like with Wade, Mina had also met somebody else who I'll refer to as Mina's boyfriend in this video, again for privacy reasons, and they had moved in together. This meant that in Mina's home there lived Mina, Mina's boyfriend, Austin and his sister. Austin graduated from the Suncoast High School in 2015 where he had played on the football team for four years and had been on the wrestling team during his sophomore year. He then went on to take classes over the summer of 2015 or 2016. I was unable to pinpoint exactly when this happened but I do believe it was in 2015 at the Palm Beach State College, where he achieved good grades, allowing him to go on to enroll at the Florida State University, majoring in biology. In other sources, he went to this college in 2016 after completing his first year to boost his grades. So I'm unsure which um, actually took place, but I'm inclined to believe that he went in 2015 prior to going to university. During his freshman year, Austin joined a fraternity, which was resulted in him going out partying two to three times a week, which caused his grades to start to slip. Partway through the year, Austin decided that he wanted to actually become a dietitian, which meant that he had to change his major from biology to sports sciences, and he did just that. By the end of his freshman year, he was achieving a 3.3 grade point average, and as a result of those grades, he actually had to drop 
drop his chemistry class. He also met a girl in April of 2016 who quickly became his girlfriend. They texted and video chatted very frequently, almost every day. At the end of his first year at university, Austin returned back to his mother's house where he began a six-week internship at his father's dental practice. And that started in July of 2016. Now, importantly, when Austin came back from university, his friends and family noticed quite a difference in his personality. At the start of July 2016, he revealed to his friends and family that he wanted to become a popular and famous rap artist, something that was very out of character for Austin, as according to some sources, he had never been the kind of person to listen predominantly to that genre of music, and he had never really expressed an interest in becoming a famous musician before. So this was very out of character for him. He began to make YouTube videos, which he would upload under the name Osty Frosty, and Austin became obsessed with everything to do with his musical efforts. He believes that if he worked hard at it, he would be very successful. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Music Television, and uh, we are presenting Osty Frosty. The band is called The Frost Fleet, and for the vocals, we've got Osty Frosty in this corner. For the guitar, we've got Osty Frosty in the left. For the bass, we've got Osty Frosty on the right, and behind on the drums is Osty Frosty. They will be performing high standards. Thank you. I am high right now, but my standards are higher. I'm too sober right now. Baby, just pass me that. Lighter. I said I'm hot. Austin began to become more fashion conscious as a result of him wanting to become this public figure or famous rap artist. He visited his girlfriend who was in Tampa over the weekend of the 4th of August to the 7th of August. And during this time, his obsession with his music dreams caused him to become an insomniac, getting over a handful of hours sleep at night. It's also reported that when he did wake up after these handful of hours, his girlfriend would find him screaming as if there were monsters there, kind of like sleep paralysis. When he returned back to his mother's home after that visit, his family and friends noted an even more drastic change in his personality. Austin was considering dyeing his hair blue in an attempt to garner more attention, though fortunately his girlfriend managed to persuade him out of that decision. He then decided that he wanted to go purchase a heavy chain so that he could look like the famous rap artists. His vision then suddenly shifted and he decided that he wanted to focus his efforts on becoming the next great civil rights leader. He became passionate about helping people and he actually became so obsessed over this that his parents and his friends and family described him as being quite overbearing and quite annoying in him uh, 
helping them with everything. He told his family that he thought he could even be a mediator and solve the problems raised by the protesters of the Black Lives Matter movement. Two weeks prior to the tragedy of the 15th of August 2016, Austin's personality drastically changed again. He, he changed from being this jokey, fun, goofy person that his family and friends had come to know and love, and he became very, very serious, dead set on working hard to achieve his goals. Since visiting his girlfriend in Tampa, he had begun to research philosophy, religious texts, and even the Illuminati. He studied in depth Tony Robbins, Abraham Lincoln, Krishna, and Buddhist teachings. Austin also became overly friendly with everybody that he came across, including patients at his father's dental practice. On one occasion, his patients opened up about the facts that most of his friends had sadly died as a result of the AIDS pandemic and Austin was extremely extremely concerned about this patient. He believed that he shared a special bond with this patient because Austin and the patient had the same birthday. It's important to note that in these two weeks leading up to the tragedy, Austin's mood was extremely elated. He would later describe that he felt as if he had superpowers. Though on the flip side he would often wake in the middle of the night to see monsters in his room. One of these superpowers that Austin believed that he had was the ability to manipulate water, primarily the water that he would use to sterilize the dental equipment, and he believed that he had the ability to bless this water, making it sterile, and that the water would sculpt to his hands, which further allowed him to bless this water and sterilize it. In Austin's mission to become the next greatest civil rights leader, he began to obsess over Gandhi. He would fast just as Gandhi has, and he even set his phone lock screen to a picture of Gandhi to remind himself whenever he he looked at his phone. He believed that he had this special kind of charisma which allowed him to talk to anybody and everybody without caring what anybody thought about him. He also thought that he was extremely, extremely talented in every area that he applied himself to, believing that if he worked hard at something, he was bound to be successful at it because he was so talented. During the week leading up to the events of the 15th of August 2016, Austin believed he was seeing dark shadows at night while he was in his bed. He claims to have developed an ability to read people and environments to distinguish good and evil. Austin had started to believe that the devil was out to kill him and his sister and that everybody inside his mother's house was also at risk. As a result of this, he wanted to be closer to his family, so he moved his mattress, which was located on the other side of the house to where his family slept, to his old bedroom, which was much closer. He even began to sleep in his sister's bedroom on the floor, and this was because for two reasons. He believes that his sister was in danger and he wanted to protect her, but also because he was scared and he wanted to be with someone. Austin had also brought his dog into his room to sleep with him on many occasions during that week, so that the dog could protect him and so that he in turn could also protect the dog. He also took the dog for a walk, which is something he'd never done before. And this was because he had started to feel a very special connection to dogs. On Friday the 12th of 
August 2016, three days before the tragedy, Austin wholeheartedly believes that he had superpowers. He believes that he was just like Jesus, and he began to walk in a slow, harmonious movement that Jesus also was said to walk in. Austin would later say in his psychiatric evaluation that he, as a Jesus-like person, he felt the responsibility to fix everybody else's problems. He began to wear lightly coloured clothes simply because Jesus was also said to have worn lightly coloured clothing. Austin also developed this ideology that darker clothing was evil and if he wore it it would make him evil. He became very very afraid of the dark and slept with the lights on. On Saturday the 13th of August 2016 Austin had begun to collect business cards from people as he believed that through these cards he would be able to protect people. Though this idea wouldn't last long as the very next day on the Sunday he fears that having these business cards would actually do the opposite and could actually bring harm to these people, so he tore them up and threw them away. He also became obsessed on that Saturday with his horoscope, and primarily the fact that he was a Sagittarius. And a symbolization of the Sagittarius star sign is a half-man, half-horse type creature. And it was on this Saturday that Austin began to believe that he was half-man, half-horse. Austin had gone on a bike ride with his father Wade and Wade's girlfriend that day on the Saturday, and he exhibited an increased interest in the horses that they cycled past. On this bike ride, he had also heard a group of dogs barking in the distance, and he got this sudden feeling that the dog's souls were asking for his help. That Saturday evening, Austin joined his father and his father's girlfriend at a restaurant for dinner. At this restaurant, Austin kept drinking more and more water as he believes that this water was connected to the fountain of youth. And by drinking more and more water, it would actually keep him young and make him younger, make him live longer. His father, Wade, and even one of the waiters at the restaurant tried to persuade him to have an alcoholic drink drink to take the edge off because he was clearly quite agitated and quite tense, though Austin refused. At this dinner, Wade and his girlfriend actually had a small argument, and as a result of this, Austin asked Wade's girlfriend whether uh, she wanted him to give her a lift back to their house. However, his father Wade refused to give Austin the keys to his car. Subsequently, Austin left the restaurant and began to walk back to his mother's house. On the way, he crossed over a bridge where he spoke to a group of Hispanic people and also a group of homeless people. At one point, a cyclist was cycling down the road as Austin was walking up the street in the middle of the road, and this cyclist, seeing um, Austin, swerved out of the way to make sure that they didn't hit him. And as a result of the cyclist swerving out of the way, Austin believed that he actually had a force field that made him invincible, and that now nothing could do him harm. As he was walking along the route back to his mother's house, a street lamp actually switched off, which he 
immediately started panicking because he believed that this was the work of some dark, evil forces that were out to get him and out to, out to harm him. So he ran to the nearest source of light, which was a local pizza shop. And when he got to this pizza place, a family has just started getting into their truck to go home. Austin asked his family if he could hitch a ride in the bed of this truck to the entrance of his neighborhood. And the family agrees. Austin had never hitchhiked before, although thankfully in this case, he was safely dropped off at the entrance to his neighborhood. The following day, on Sunday the 14th of August 2016, Austin went with his father, his father's girlfriend, and his best friend to a gun show where he bought a knife which he claimed he needed for protection, a switchblade knife. He spoke to one vendor about survivalism and he spoke to another vendor at the gun show about what to do in hand-to-hand -hand combat. After they left the gun show at about 5pm, Austin and his family went over to his maternal grandmother's house for dinner and his behaviour there was very, very strange. During this dinner, his family noted that he was extremely talkative and very, very affectionate. He would constantly tell them that he loved them and he constantly said to his grandmother that um, he was so, so grateful for her for cooking the food for everyone and he, all this blessing stuff. He even told them that they should all be very nice to everybody they meet. Later that day, his mother Mina gave him his grandmother's stone cross, which he took happily and wore around his neck for further protection. On that fateful Monday, the 15th of August 2016, 19-year-old Austin Haruf woke up and put on a Michael Vick jersey. He had done this because he believed he had this special connection to dogs. And despite the fact that Michael Vick has a connection to dogfighting, he believed that he was now a good person. So he should wear the jersey as it represented the fact that somebody could change. Austin also put on a pair of aviator sunglasses as he believes that these sunglasses would protect him from evil. He then decided to go down to the beach early on that Monday morning where he began to run as fast as he can just like an animal would. He believed he was an animal that could run this fast. He began jumping from rock to rock as if he was some kind of acrobat who had these superpowers that allowed him to jump pretty high. Austin would later describe that during this trip to the beach, he felt as if he was half man, half a dog. And when he saw other dogs who were going for their morning walks at the beach, he felt a really, really special connection to them. And he just knew that he was half dog, half man. Believe that dog fur had started growing on his face. After a stint <laughs> at the beach, he decided to run to his father's house to collect his car, which he had left there the night before. On the way there, he ran in the middle of the roads, believing that his force field would protect him. And obviously, people not wanting to hit somebody running down the middle of the road swerved out of the way to avoid him, which further concreted his belief that he had this force field. He had this belief that he was invincible. When he arrived at his father's house, only his father's girlfriend was there and she had contacted his father who had told her to try and keep him at the house. So she started giving him odd jobs to do, like repair the radio on the 
boats or move something or you know those uh, odd jobs that could keep him busy. As lunch approached, Wade came home on his lunch break from the dental practice and he instructed his son Ossian to take a Xanax so that he would calm down. He handed him the bottle of Xanax that he had prescribed and Austin just threw it onto the grass, threw it away from him, refusing to take it because he believes that drugs were evil and that they were killing him. Austin then climbs and jumps on top of the roof and on top of the hood of Wade's car until Wade was forced to give him uh, Austin's car keys back. When he got the car keys back, Austin jumped into his car and drove to a nearby jewelry store with Wade's father driving in his own car close behind. Wade tried to give Austin another Xanax just outside of this jewelry store. Austin puts the Xanax pill in his mouth but then straight away took it out and threw it to the floor refusing to take it and unfortunately Wade's lunch hour was coming to an end so he had to leave to go back to work. Austin then drove over to his best friend's house completely unannounced at about 11am. When he got there he started jumping on his friend's car due to this belief that he was an acrobat which understandably and rightfully so annoyed his friend. The friend and Austin Austin then drove to the beach to hang out, and while they were there at around midday to 1pm, Austin's sister contacted him, and so they went to his mum's house to pick her up and bring her to the beach too. On the drive back to the beach, the group of three decided to stop off at a restaurant to grab some lunch. Austin didn't order food though, he only ordered water, which he kept drinking, and he kept getting up on several occasions to walk around the restaurant and run around the outside of the building. He also refused to take off his aviator sunglasses even when inside the restaurant. He told his sister while they were at this restaurant that he had developed this sixth sense and he was able to determine the good and evil within people and also that he was scared of evil spirits in their mother's house. Once they all got back into the car to drive back to the beach, Austin then revealed to them that he was actually half man, half horse. At around 2.30pm to 3pm, the group finally got on their way back to the beach and on this journey, Austin drove very fast and made an illegal U-turn at a red light. His sister texted their mother saying that Austin needed to see a psychologist at 2.53pm. When they arrived at the beach, Austin started saying that he was now half man, half dog. The group then bumped into five of Austin's fraternity brothers who also noted that he was acting very, very strange. The fraternity brothers invited the group of them over to one of their homes as they were having a small party and the three uh, accepted this invitation. When they got to the house, Austin saw people smoking weed and drinking alcohol, but he decided that he wouldn't partake as he believed that drugs were evil. He actually took a beer bottle and pulled beer over his left hand as he believed he could absorb the beer through his hand and he believed that this was a way of feeding his left hand. Austin then began playing with a lacrosse ball, jumping about as if he was a dog, and on several occasions he disappeared off into the woods behind the house and then returned again, wanting to be with nature. Austin, his sister and his best friend decided to leave the house party and they drove over to Austin's father's house. Austin's sister had been texting their father 
during these events, updating him on these weird things that Austin was coming out with. And Austin's father was rightfully very, very um, worried and concerned. And he'd come back home from work. I believe he came back home early just so that he could be there and try and figure out what's going on with Austin. Interestingly, Austin climbed into the trunk of the car when they drove back from the party to Austin's father's house because he thought he was a dog and that he, be he belongs in the, the back of the car. When they arrived at their father's house, they decided to go out on a hike through the local woods. The hike itself lasted only two or three hours, but the events that took place on this hike and the subsequent events that followed are very, very strange. According to a police interview with Austin's father, Austin's mood was very, very volatile. In one moment, he would be very happy and very outgoing, but in the next, he would be very shy and reserved and withdrawn. Partway through the hike, the group came across two empty tortoise shells. As soon as Austin saw these shells, he pulled out his switchblade knife that he had bought at the gun show the day before and told everyone to stop. He then told everyone to stay behind him because he felt that something really bad was going to happen in this location. Austin's father yelled at Austin to put the knife away and Austin obliged. The group then started to continue on their hike, but as they set off, Austin began to run as fast as he could. He sprinted at full speed for a considerable distance. Austin's father, Wade, called his girlfriend to come pick them up, um, and when his girlfriend came and picked them up, they also drove and picked up Austin, and they found him to be extremely dehydrated and extremely sweaty, so they decided that they would go and grab some dinner and, um, you know, refresh, get some more water and then rehydrate, get some good food in their systems. While they were waiting for the food to arrive at the table at this restaurant, Austin excused himself to go to the bathroom, but he never came back. Austin had actually run back to his mother's house where he knocks on the door. When Mina Haruf, Austin's mother, opened the front door, she was confronted with Austin standing there in just his shorts with no shirt on, extremely sweaty. Austin didn't say anything to his mother, he just walked straight into the house. And when Mina inquired as to where his sister was because she knew that he'd been spending the day with his sister, he replied by saying that he didn't know. Even though he had just been at the restaurant with them, Mina had just started cooking dinner when Austin had shown up. And so she asked him whether he was hungry and whether he wanted any of the food that she was cooking. By this point, Austin and Mina had moved into the kitchen. Austin told his mother that yes, he was hungry. And so Mina began to gather all the ingredients to make some more food for Austin. She went into the refrigerator to take out more ingredients. As she was closing the fridge, she saw Austin holding a bottle of Wesson oil, which is an American vegetable oil which is used in cooking. Austin was holding the oil in a manner that looked as if he was about to start chugging the oil from the bottle. So naturally, Mina told him, that isn't a drink, you can't drink that, took it off of him and put it on the counter. Right as she did this, her mobile phone started ringing 
And when Mina picked up this phone, she realised that her daughter was on the other end of the line. Meanwhile, Austin had grabbed a bowl, filled it with mozzarella cheese, and poured this Western oil all over it and started eating it. Mina's daughter, who was on the other end of the line on the phone with Mina, asked her whether she knew where Austin was as... They were waiting for him to return at the restaurant. Mina asked what happened, and her daughter just said that he just simply left. Mina then asked Austin why he left the restaurant, speculating that maybe he had gotten into some kind of altercation or something like that. But when she asked Austin, Austin replied by saying he didn't know. Mina didn't take this response as an answer, and so she persisted more and more. And finally, Austin replied by saying that he didn't want to wait for the food to come. Following that, Mina asked her daughter whether the food had arrived at the restaurant yet and uh, Mina's daughter said yes it had so Mina asked um, Austin whether he wanted to go back to the restaurant to eat his food and he said yeah I, I do okay let's go Austin went and grabbed a clean blue polo shirt before jumping into his mother's car interestingly when Mina inquired as to the whereabouts of Austin's phone or wallet he said that he didn't know where they were on the drive back to the restaurant, Mina asked Austin what was going on as she was extremely concerned for his mental health. She told him that she was very worried about him and that she thinks that he should go to counselling and Austin agrees that he should go see a counsellor twice during this car journey. Mina then dropped her son off at the restaurant at around 8.20pm and watched as he walked back inside the building. Unbeknownst to Mina, this would be the last time that she would see her son walking as a free man. Austin walks back into the restaurant and sat down at the table where his father, his father's girlfriend and his sister were sat waiting with all their food. Wade, his father, asked him and I quote, what the hell are you doing? Austin didn't reply, he just stood there at the table. So his father, in a sudden fit of rage perhaps born out of his concern and determined to get to the bottom of this grabbed austin by the collar and asked him again what the hell are you doing austin then pulled back his arm as if he was about to punch his father though he didn't seem as if he was angry or agitated he just seemed very strange or weird it's also important to note that austin had never displayed violent tendencies prior to this and he never once hit his father before or anything like that. Wade's girlfriend, who was sat at the table, quickly said, Austin, don't. And upon hearing this, Austin looked at her, dropped his arm, and then walked out of the restaurant. That would be the last time that they would ever see Austin as a free man. The group tried to go look for him, but they were unable to find Austin. So they decided to call up Mina again to see whether he had gone back to her house as he had before. Mina informed them that Austin hadn't come home and she was told about what happened at the restaurant before he had taken off. Mina then said that we should all go and start looking for him. She asked which direction he had taken off in and she found out that she, he had started off in the direction of Church Street. 
Roberts. Mina suggested that perhaps Austin was walking to his best friend's house, which was in that general direction. They rang up Austin's best friend's mother to see if he had seen him, but she said that uh, she hadn't. Mina then jumped into her car and started searching for her son. She accidentally stumbled upon a massive crime scene with detectives and paramedics crawling all over the scene. Mina asked them if they had seen her son and described him as wearing white shorts and a blue polo shirt. The detective who she had asked went over and spoke to their sergeant before returning and asking whether Mina knew anyone called Ivy. She said that she didn't know an Ivy and she was fairly sure that Austin didn't know an Ivy as he had never mentioned an Ivy before. So she thanked the officer, got back in her car, went and looked for Austin at a few local shopping centers before returning back home. She decided that she would wait for him. While at home, Mina made the first 911 call that you heard in this video. The 911 call has been edited to admit certain private details and to admit information that aren't relevant to the context of this case. She was advised to make the 911 call by a friend whose husband worked at the police department. By this point, it was the middle of the night, so Mina decided that she would get into bed, make sure that she had a phone by her on loud so that she would know as soon as there was any news as to Austin's whereabouts. She'd been in constant contact with Wade, Austin's father, who was still out searching for him. At 2.30am, Mina heard a knock on the front door. She came down the stairs and saw the red and blue police lights, and she knew right there and then that something was terribly wrong. When she opened the front door, there were a handful of police officers stood before her, who told her that her son Austin had been involved in a serious crime, had been arrested and taken to hospital. But what exactly happened? 19-year-old Austin Haroof is the Florida State University student who's key suspect in the gruesome murders of a local couple. 59-year-old John Stevens and 53-year-old Michelle Mishcon were stabbed to death in the garage of their home on Florida's east coast. Police say Haroof was biting Stevens' face and had to be pulled off the body by officers. I've seen a lot of crime scenes. Uh, I was there last night. I don't know that I've ever seen any, anything with this much violence. This much uh, aggression and, and homicide. Health workers say Haroof was making animal-like noises before being sedated. However, a blood test has shown no signs of drugs in his system. Flocka is not a drug that can be tested for at the hospital level, nor can bath salts or some other substances that could result in the excited deliriums that uh, we, we saw last night. So we will continue uh, waiting on that, and, and hopefully a big piece of this puzzle will be revealed. In Miami in 2012, a man was discovered chewing on another man's face. Some think the 2012 attack was prompted by a reaction to the synthetic stimulant Flocka. Fisher said he was in bed and heard strange noises, then a scream. He ran outside. I saw uh, him slamming Michelle's car door and then go fuzzy. Um, I saw Michelle come out of the man door into the garage and him grab a hold of Michelle and throw her to the ground. Fisher said when he arrived, Harris spoke to him. He turned and looked at me and said, you want no part of this, you want no part of me, one of the two. Right hand swung. Harif connected with 
the swing, slicing his face and body. He was bleeding and ran for safety through John Stevens and Michelle Mishkan's house, ending up on the side of the home. So he hid near a bush, and though he couldn't see Harif before running home, he could hear him. when the neighbor ran back to their house and called the police, which was the 911 call that you heard at the start of this video. But what happens exactly when the police arrived on the scene? I saw a huge giant trail of blood, probably.
whether or not Austin was under the influence of drugs that could have induced a psychosis and caused him to act in this way. In particular, the public were particularly concerned about the drug Flacker, which had been known to have caused a similar case a few years prior, where a man had eaten another man's face as a result of taking the substance. Austin didn't know the Stevens family. He had never met them before. It was a completely random attack. Austin had started experimenting with alcohol around the age of 17 and found that it helped to calm his nerves and take the edge off. He had drunk alcohol fairly infrequently up until he left for university, which is where he would drink as much as three times a week during parties and would subsequently experience alcohol-induced blackouts. When Austin was still in high school, he also began to experiment with the drug marijuana with his friends, though he would only smoke it a few times a month. He actually claimed to have a low tolerance to the drug, which meant that only after a few hits he would feel the strong effects. At university, he began to experiment with the drugs Adderall and Venise, which he used to help him study. He would take those drugs so that he would stay up all night concentrating on his study. We also know that when he came back from university, he was smoking marijuana almost every day up until he had this sudden realization that drugs were bad for him. It also emerged that he had taken mushrooms, LSD and ecstasy on separate occasions as part of his drug experimentation. Text message conversations also show that he may have also experimented with cocaine. Though, on the Friday before the murders, Austin had spoken to his mother and his mother's boyfriend about how drugs were evil and that they were killing him. So his mother and his mother's boyfriend told him to throw out all of the drugs if he uh, thought they were so bad. And he did. He took uh, marijuana and mushrooms that he had in his room. Um, he went to the lake, which was at the rear of their property, and threw them away in the lake. Blood samples were taken and sent for extensive drug testing to determine whether he had flacker in his system or not, or any other uh, drugs that he hadn't detected. And when the reports came back, the results shocked everyone. We were surprised by the results of the blood work. 
South Salts, no Flocka. Late this afternoon, the Martin County State Attorney's Office released its toxicology report on Austin Heroff. Blood work done by the FBI showed Heroff with an ethanol level of 0.17 and trace amounts of THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, but there were no bath salts or Flocka in his system. I was surprised by the results, and of course we'll have to leave it up to the jury, now the trier of fact, to determine what, if anything, that the blood work impact will have on their, on their trial. It became immediately clear that there was something seriously wrong in the chemical makeup of Austin's brain. In particular, it seems that he was highly likely suffering from a very severe mental disorder or mental illness, which was causing him to act in this way. Two independent psychological evaluations were conducted on Austin to determine whether he was suffering from any mental illness and to determine whether he was insane, legally insane, at the time of the murders. And as a result of both those evaluations, he was diagnosed with bipolar type 1 disorder. The reports have been released to the public through the Martin County's attorney office. And Austin's accounts of what he says he saw the night of the murders and what happened in the garage beyond disturbing. When Austin was dropped off by his mother at the restaurants, his father grabbed him by the shirt. He pulled back his fist, but he decided to not hit his father when his father's girlfriend asked him not to. He left the restaurant a second time. He wanted to teach his father a lesson by walking home alone and showing that he was able to get to his father's house without his assistance. He was feeling invincible. Austin recalled running and following the stars. There were no streetlights on the road. He saw some headlights come around the corner and he thought it was something evil. He turned towards the car to ward it off and the car drove off. About three quarters of the way to his father's home, Austin saw a dark figure with a white face. He thought of the figure as evil. The figure said, hey Austin, and he recognized the voice to be the voice of his cousin's friend. When he had known this cousin's friend, he thought about him as being a bad guy. He believed that his cousin's friend was trying to kill him. He sprinted away, screaming with terror. He made a left turn and saw a white light coming from a garage. Austin ran towards the lighted garage to ask for help in getting home. He did not have a memory of what he planned to say, but he perceived the lighted garage as an area of safety in his terror. He next recalled seeing a woman in the garage and her screaming at her. He thought that she was a witch because of the way she was screaming. He screamed when she was screaming because he was scared. He did not recall having any conversation with her. He thinks she had brown hair. He was fearful and in a panic state from seeing the dark figure and hearing her screams. He was afraid he would be harmed. It's important to note that at some points, Austin had actually removed his clothing, so he was only in his underwear, though in some reports it stated that he wasn't even wearing underwear. So um, Michelle's reaction to a random man showing up in barely any clothing is very well justified, in my opinion. Austin had a vague recollection of picking up a machete or something and stabbing the woman 
and biting her. He believes he was a dog at the time of biting her. He was unsure of the sequence of events in the garage. His best recollection was that he drank a bottle of alcohol or something, which would later turn out to be a, um, a very toxic and dangerous chemical, while he was in the garage after stabbing the woman. He next recalled seeing a guy in the doorway and a dog. I think I stabbed him too. Austin had some recollection of a man with a mustache wearing a white shirt, but he was uncertain whether this was the woman's husband or the neighbor who had come over to help. He recalled a guy yelling at him. He was fearful when he stabbed the man. He did not recall biting the man. He had a vague recollection of a dog sitting in the passenger seat of a white truck. He had no recollection of his encounter with the police officers. His next recollection was waking up in the hospital. It was subsequently determined by these two psychological evaluations that Austin had been legally insane at the time of the attacks. The trial was set to take place in November of 2019. However, it was postponed to middle of May 2020 this year. The prosecution then requested for a third psychological evaluation to be conducted on Austin, which meant that the trial has been delayed once more to the summer of 2020. What do you think of this case? Do you think that Austin was legally insane at the time of the murders? Do you think he should get sentenced to life in prison or be served a sentence in a psychiatric hospital for a period of time? Let me know down in the comments below. I personally believe that after reading countless documents in relation to this case, that Austin was experiencing a psychosis that was not drug-induced. He was experiencing an extremely acute psychosis which led to the brutal murder of two innocent people. As I said, I don't believe this psychosis to be drug-induced, but I do believe his previous experimentation with drugs may have amplified an underlying mental illness or mental disorder that could have worsened his mental health to the point where he could experience this psychosis. Though it is important to note that Austin had in fact thrown out all of his drugs the Friday before the murders and when the drug test came back it only showed the presence of THC which is the chemical within marijuana that gives you the high. If he had been around people smoking marijuana on the day of the attacks, which he claims he was at the fraternity party, it could have been likely that he might have inhaled um, secondhand smoke, which is how THC could have been present in his system. I believe he should be sentenced to a prison that specializes in psychiatric care with a minimum term of at least 25 or more years. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel if you want to see more true crime videos just like this one and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new episode of my Curious Case series. As I said at the start of this video, I'm now posting brand new Curious Case episodes every Wednesday and Sunday at 9pm UK time. Be sure to jump over to Twitter and Instagram and follow me over there as I am on a quest to get to 10,000 followers on Instagram. So if you want to see more of what's going on behind the scenes, more of who I am as a person, and if you want to find out when there are schedule changes, then be sure to hit the follow button over there. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.
So this young white girl has a little YouTube channel that I watch. Hey guys, and welcome back to my channel. So today's case is really, really interesting. I know I say that all the time, but this one is just fascinating to me. There's a lot to cover here, so let's go ahead and just jump right in. So this whole case takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Brittany Marcel was living there with her mother and her six other siblings. That's right, they had seven kids in their family. And her mom was actually a single mom, so that was pretty difficult for her to have seven kids, but she was a great mom, she was really attentive. Their upbringing was pretty good, they lived in a really nice neighborhood. Brittany is known to have a great personality, was really friendly, she was known to be a very positive person, and she had a bunch of big dreams for her life. Eventually she wanted to go into TV journalism and be a newscaster of some sort. At this time in her life, she was a high school senior. She was doing really well in school and was planning to go to college. She was currently working at a job at a sunglass kind of stall kiosk thing at the mall. You know, where you try to walk by really fast, but they always come up to you and try to sell you sunglasses? One of those. And she was really good at it because she was, you know, really social. She enjoyed people. She would strike up conversations with them and get them to buy two, three, even four pairs of sunglasses sometimes. And all was well in their life until September 11th, 2008. This was a completely normal day for them. Brittany had school, her mom had work. That day, Brittany and Diane decided that they were actually gonna meet up for lunch together. This is something they did every so often, but it was just a spur of the moment plan. It was a Thursday morning and they just were like, let's go ahead and meet up for lunch today. But instead of going out, they decided to just meet up at the house. So Brittany went to school that morning. She had a normal half day at school and then came home for her lunch to meet her mom there. On her way there, she called her mom and just checked in and told her she was headed there. Diane said that when she was on the phone, she acted completely normal, didn't seem scared or worried about anything. So Brittany went home for lunch to meet her mom. She went into the house when she got there. Diane did the same. And when she pulled up and went into her house, she was shocked by what she found. She found Brittany on the floor covered in blood. She had dropped all of her belongings, books, everything was around her spread out. So it happened as soon as she walked into the house. She looked like she had been badly beaten. She was swollen and kind of disfigured already. The swelling starts to happen quick. And there was a man next to her just holding a shovel. And Diane said this was not someone that she recognized. She got a look at him because he wasn't wearing a mask or anything like that, but it wasn't someone she knew. So she obviously starts freaking out. And the guy actually drops the shovel, runs into the kitchen and grabs a butcher knife. And then he started coming at Diane saying, you're next. And in that moment, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like as a mom to have to decide to leave your daughter who's beaten on the ground, but she decides to run, which was the smartest thing to do for sure. She goes over to a neighbor's house and calls 911 immediately. What is your name? Diane Marcel. I said, my daughter's been beaten and the guy's probably still in there. I'm afraid that he might be in there. Oh my gosh. So Diane decides to go back over to the house, which is really scary because she doesn't know if the guy's still there, but he actually had fled the scene. Is your daughter breathing right now? She's breathing but moaning. She's going to lose consciousness. Please, there's blood everywhere. So she went over there and discovered Brittany was in terrible condition, was bleeding everywhere, totally swollen and disfigured, but she was still alive. She was just unconscious. They load Brittany up and send her to the hospital. And at this point, you know, they have no idea if she's going to survive. So police came to the crime scene and right off the bat, they felt like this was not any type of burglary or home invasion because there was nothing stolen or messed with. The person solely came in to attack Brittany. 
They figured it had to be some type of personal attack. Someone who was stalking Brittany. Was someone following her, waiting for her to come home to attack her specifically? Is it someone she knows? It is weird because Diane, you know, made eye contact with him. She said his face is like seared into her memory, but she did not know who he was. Investigators also believe that this guy left the house pretty much as soon as Diane ran out to get help. He probably realized the police would be coming shortly, so he needed to get out of that house fast. So instead of going through the door, he breaks a window and climbs out of that. And there's glass all over the outside of the house where the window was. And as he was going out, he cuts himself and gets this perfect drop of blood onto a piece of glass and leaves it there. It's almost like a lab sample. Like it was just made for the police. A lot of police cars around and at the crime lab. Uh, truck was here and uh, then they told me what had happened that uh, she had been hit with a shovel and they didn't expect her to live it was really bad extremely shocked they're a wonderful clean cut decent family so having dna having blood is a huge help to the police obviously but they still did not have an idea of who this could be because the family had no guesses about who it could be at first. It's not like everyone's DNA is in a database. There were no matches coming up for this drop of blood. So a few days after the attack, Brittany was still in terrible condition in the hospital. She had multiple skull fractures, lacerations on her head and her face. She had a broken arm and a broken wrist. And a lot of people around her, doctors, family, friends, felt like she may not make it. They figured out that she had clearly tried to fight back because she had all these bruises and scratches on her wrists trying to defend herself. And doctors were really concerned because her pupils were fixed in one size and she had really minimal brain activity. So they started saying she had a low chance of survival. At this point, they decided it would be best for her to be put into an induced coma for two weeks. But when she came out of the coma, she had no recollection of the attack or what happened to her at all. She says that at first she thought she had been in a car accident. It was really hard for her to find out that she had actually been beaten with a shovel inside of her house. I mean, how scary to wake up and be told something like that. So Brittany's recovery lasted years. In fact, she's still in recovery. She's not 100% back to normal. She's required so many surgeries. At first they had 16 different surgeries. And in one of the earlier surgeries, they actually had to take out like about a nickel sized part of her brain. She also had a fractured part of her skull. And this is crazy, but they took that fractured piece and they put it inside her abdomen, sewed it back up and let it stay in there and heal for a little while. And in the meantime, she was wearing this helmet thing to kind of protect her head. And then eventually when the fractured part of her skull healed up, they took it out of her abdomen and placed it back on her skull. Is that not the most amazing thing? With a lot of help and a lot of work on Brittany's part, she eventually did learn how to speak, how to walk, how to eat again. She definitely wasn't 100% back to herself. She had a ton of memory loss, but she was living a life that was worthwhile again. But one thing that she was really suffering from still was the memory loss. The doctors didn't know if it could be long term, if it was short term, if it would ever come back. Memory is a tricky thing, you know, we still don't completely understand how it works. They told the family that maybe she could regain some of her memory, but to not have too high of hopes. Brittany was struggling to remember pretty much anything, even close relationships she'd had in the years leading up to this attack. Brittany lived but had severe brain damage. She couldn't remember anything about her attacker. She missed her senior year at Cibola High School, so her class voted her homecoming queen.
my family decided to move out of that house, they never wanted to go back into it, actually. There was just too many bad memories from that attack. And her mom, in her spare time when she wasn't caring for her daughter, she started really putting pressure on the investigators and trying to get this case solved. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he's at. We don't know a real live picture of what he looks like. Is he still in New Mexico? We don't know. Is he out of the state? Is he out of the country? We don't know. So when this all first happened, investigators started asking Diane if there was anyone she thought may want to hurt Brittany, if she can think of anyone that may want to do this. And eventually one of her other daughters brought up that maybe it's her biological father. He had not been a good father to his kids. They remembered several times where he was aggressive with them. And they had a horrible, nasty divorce. It wasn't just bitter, he was violent. I got out of a marriage because of domestic violence. As a kid, I, I distinctly remember that. And it was something you shouldn't remember. So Diane started thinking, maybe he sent someone, like a murder for hire plot, the house to kill me. And they just got confused and they tried to kill Brittany instead. They weren't sure about this. It was just, you know, a random shot in the dark because they really had no other possibilities. But after investigators spent some time looking into him and talking with him, they were able to clear him as a suspect. So more time had gone on and Diane was still really frustrated with the lack of progress that they were seeing. And the police kept on telling her, you know, maybe as time goes on, your daughter's memory will improve and maybe she will be able to give us more of a lead. But her memory was coming back really slowly and she specifically could not remember anything about the attack, which is not surprising because even if you don't suffer from memory loss in an attack, being attacked like that with a shovel could be such a traumatic experience that your memory will actually block it out so you can't remember it at all. So police just felt like unless those memories come back, you know, there's not much we can do with a single drop of blood. Now, like I mentioned earlier, that drop of blood when put into the database did not bring up anybody. They started just calling it John Doe. Now, Diane gave her own description to the police, and here's what she said. She described him as a Caucasian or Hispanic male, approximately 20 to 30 years old, 5 foot 7 inches tall, clean shaven with brown hair. And this, along with a description of the attacker and what happened, was released to the public. They got a few leads from this, but nothing panned out. In 2010, the case was featured on America's Most Wanted, which brought in some more leads. The mysterious man who attacked and almost killed an Albuquerque teenager inside her own home is still on the loose tonight, more than a year after the attack. Today, America's Most Wanted tried to bring the search to an end. Believe me, I know it's the worst nightmare any parent can live through. Now she's living with her family in Texas, still recovering from the attack that almost killed her. I'm glad that I don't remember it all, but there are some parts that I wish I remembered as to who he is and why it was my house. But again, none of those leads panned out. And then in August of 2013, the family got really lucky because they were assigned to a new detective who is just awesome. Her name is Jody Gonterman, and she's just very passionate about her job. So when she first started working with Brittany, she would try to have her come up with any names that she could think of from her past that possibly could have done something. And they went through each of those names, found each person, and somehow cleared them. This was taking a ton of time just slowly ruling out every single person that she can remember. So eventually Jody was like, well, how about we try hypnosis? And this is why this case is so fascinating to me because I am very interested in hypnosis. Hypnosis does not always work, but when it does, it's pretty interesting what can be recalled. Brittany wanted to try it, so they brought her in to a hypnotherapist, and they were actually worried that at first maybe she wasn't gonna be able to get any memories back because her brain was so damaged. I mean, it was physically beaten with a shovel, but they thought, you know, 
if she is repressing these memories because of trauma and not because of physical trauma, then maybe they are retrievable. Her hypnosis session was actually filmed, which is really cool. And before they even put her under hypnosis, they were talking to her just about her life before this happened, trying to see what she could naturally remember. And she did remember the fact that she was going to be going to college to study journalism and remember that her grade point average was around a 3.6 to a 3.78. So they felt like, you know, maybe she has some hope here. So then they put her into hypnosis. And then she actually relived the attack right there in front of the hypnotherapist. This is the moment Brittany begins shaking as she relives the attack. Tell me what was that? What was that? It's, it's hurting. How? Oh. Like a stick or something big. Hmm. I'm Did he say anything? She left the session remembering a bunch and being super overwhelmed, but she didn't have a specific person. And then she went home to rest for a few days. And then after a few days, she remembered even more. She eventually came up with a specific description of the person. She believed it was someone with very light skin, a Hispanic male with black spiky hair, a square face, big nose, and weird eyes. She specifically said that his eyes were brown. She said he had prominent eyebrows, big ears, a big forehead, and no visible tattoos, and that he was wearing a t-shirt when it happened. So another composite sketch was put together and released to the public. So then in 2016, you know, years after the attack, they had interviewed tons of persons of interest, but they still were not giving up. But Detective Gonterman felt like, you know, they really weren't making much progress. And this is when she learned about Snapshot, which is something I've talked about in a couple videos now. It's a really, really cool technology where they can take a sample of someone's DNA and create a physical snapshot or picture of what they possibly look like or probably look like. And they would take a DNA profile and they would give us hair color, eye color, ancestry, and then they do a 3D computer-generated image of what your suspect's gonna look like. She decided this could be useful. So she sent in DNA from that blood sample and had it made into a snapshot. It takes a little while for the snapshot to be put together. So while she was waiting, she had another interview with Brittany and tried to recall more information from her. And it was then that Brittany had a more specific memory. For some reason, the name Justin Hansen came up for her. Brittany was feeling extremely foggy about why Justin Hansen's name was coming up, but she suddenly remembered him from her past and said that she remembered seeing him shortly before this all had happened. So who is Justin Hansen? He is seven years older than Brittany, and Brittany said that she remembers meeting him when she was friends with this girl named Abby. It was like middle school and they would play together and be over at Abby's house. And at the same time, her older sister, Lauren, had just gotten pregnant by this guy named Justin Hansen. So Justin Hansen was just hanging out at the house all the time. Whenever I went to Abby's house or so, he would be over with Lauren. But after a while, her friendship had fizzled with Abby. So she didn't really see her anymore. But she still saw Justin Hansen and she would randomly run into him at places and he would always say hi. And then specifically, she remembered him coming to say hi to her when she was working at that sunglasses booth a couple of times. They actually found out that he did three or four times before the attack happened. Do you remember any of the conversations that you had with Justin? They were just like, hey, how's your day? How was school? What are you doing later? You know, like a, like a regular talk you have with anybody. So they're starting to feel kind of 
weird about him. You know, they're putting him on the back burner. And then the snapshot image came back. And it looks so much like Justin Hansen. It's insane. The only thing that was weird was the sketch said that whoever did this had a high likelihood of having green or hazel eyes. And if you remember, Brittany said that she remembered the eyes being brown. I remember those eyes, though. She'd be having brown. But Justin has green eyes, which is an extremely rare eye color. So it's like, what are the chances he would match up with this? So they go find Justin Hansen, and it turns out that now he is a father. He has three kids, and on the surface, he comes across as a loving dad. He had no criminal record, so investigators were kind of confused about this. You know, why? Why would he want anything to do with Brittany? What's the connection? It's not like it was her ex-boyfriend. What would be his motive? And would he be the type of person who would want to do something like this? So detectives went and actually talked to him outside of his house, and he was just chilling in a robe, and they filmed the whole thing. They said that he was really nice, talking to them, very open about everything, expressing sadness for Brittany Marcel, was happy to talk to them about any questions that they had, and they said they were having a great conversation with him up until they asked him to submit a DNA sample. It was then that he decided he wanted to talk to a lawyer first. Think about this and then come back and see you. If you know 100% that you were never even in that house, there's no way that it's going to match me. Can I just record it and come back and, you know, just start thinking about everything and talk to my mom? Not only a lawyer, he wanted to talk to his mom. This really stuck out to investigators because before this, they had asked a bunch of different people for their DNA in regards to this case, and every single person had offered it up. Justin Hansen was the first person to deny them. And then at the end of the interview, he's walking them out of the house and they're standing in the front door area. And this is when they tell him, you know, we actually had a snapshot made of you and it looks exactly like you. We have some new evidence of 3D composite and it does resemble you. And I would rather do this now before I put that out on the news yeah. media. Like I said, just... Give me, give me a day or so, talk to my mom okay. and everything else, and I got your, I got your number, I'll give you a call cool. right back. He really seems to be kind of a mama's boy. His mom defends him about absolutely everything. She immediately said there's no way he could have done this, there's no way he could have been involved in this. Justin is very friendly. He can start a conversation with a rattlesnake. He asked me, should I be worried? I tell him, I don't know, were you involved at all? And he's like, no. And I said, then you don't have to be worried. And I know my son has never had a violent history. And after talking to her, investigators are even more confused. You know, he doesn't have a record. He seems like this great guy. Why would he do this? But after digging a little more into his past, it did find some red flags. Years before this, he was actually accused of rape by his ex-girlfriend. But she actually withdrew the charges and continued dating him for a little while longer. So that whole situation was kind of brushed under the rug. So at this point, all investigators can do is somehow obtain his DNA and try to get a match. So detectives actually followed him to a fast food restaurant and he was drinking out of a cup. After he was done with it, he gets up, throws it out, they follow him, get it out of the trash, and there you go, they have their DNA. It took a couple days for the DNA to come back, but when it did, it showed that Justin was a match for that blood sample left at the house. Here's a video of Brittany actually finding out herself. He called me today and we have a match. Oh, really? Yes, we do. Off the cup from Justin. Uh, no way! So in July of 2017, detectives decided they were going to arrest Justin Hansen. And this is nine years after Brittany was first beaten with that shovel. So to arrest him, they followed him. He went to the gym and then went to his kid's school, picked them up, and then they headed to the grocery store, and that's where they arrested him in the parking lot. You're wondering for, for some stuff, okay? I didn't do anything wrong, then. 
Almost a decade of mystery came down to this moment. 33-year-old Justin Hansen captured in the Los Lunas Albertsons parking lot Wednesday night. He tried to console his three kids with him in a shopping cart. Meanwhile, a witness says she once saw Hansen spend more than an hour talking to Marcel. And a friend of Hansen's told APD he always had a thing for young women. Hansen played ignorant with officers as they cuffed him, but APD investigators are sure this is the guy they've been looking for all along, bringing a sigh of relief to Marcel and her family. I wish he could see these pictures, because he damn sure like that little DNA shit. Today she says she remembers the whole thing. I unlocked the screen door, and I heard that, that big jolt on the back of my head. And I turn around like, Justin, like, why Justin, why? No explanation. Do you actually remember saying Justin, why? I remember that distinctly. Justin said he was innocent, and to this day he maintains that he is innocent. But blood evidence is pretty hard to deny. So they brought him in and told him that he was And he's actually a pretty little girl. And facing up to 50 years in prison. And they started showing him photos of her in the interrogation. But it's common sense to tell you he did it because... All of a sudden, he got a family and shit. Nigga, please. You did this to her. You did this to her. You can deny it all you want. I know it's you now. I'm not asking. I'm telling you it's you. After a while, he was actually let out on bail, which her family was not happy about, but it was pretty short-lived. His biggest supporter is definitely his mother. I'm just she glad the little girl didn't die. He, did he should be this, glad she didn't die, dummy. Framed for this. I feel for the Marcells. I couldn't imagine being in that position. I know that Brittany suffered a lot. I would, I would think that they would want to be 100% sure that the person they're sending to jail is the person who beat their daughter. And there's no evidence putting him in that house. And her biggest defense um, is his that blood there was no blood found the actually glass. in the house. It was found outside on the broken glass. It just doesn't make any sense. Why is his blood there? Why? It's not like he used to hang out there all the time. They were friends and could have had other reasons for his blood to be there. But this is just too perfect. So in April of 2018, yeah, he Justin Hansen actually pleaded no face. contest to attempted murder and aggravated burglary with a Told deadly you. weapon. This avoids the risk of a trial while ensuring that Hansen serves time. Well, the way my lawyer explained it to me is uh, no contest is, isn't a guilty plea. It's just, it's basically saying that you understand that there is a chance if you took it to trial that, that you could be found guilty. But afterwards... Once you get out of prison, mm -hmm. um, same reason why you, you wanted felon, your mama. Which means essentially couldn't breathe, huh? But you don't believe that you are guilty. No, I know I'm not guilty. I don't have to believe it. I know I'm not guilty. I'm most concerned about not being there for my kids. You know, I love them to death, and so Boy, thinking shut the about fuck not up. seeing them and not being there for them. Mm -hmm. Wait for me. Kind of like when you was beating that other woman's child. Brittany spoke during Fucking the hearing freak. and talked about how devastating this was on her life. On September 11th, my dreams and goals were beaten out of me. Today in court, Brittany Marcel recalled her near-death experience 10 years ago. But, but he did take my life from me. Today, the judge heard emotional testimony from Brittany's family. It was the day I lost my Brittany. Justin Hansen also spoke at the hearing and, without admitting that he was guilty, said that he was sorry to Brittany. And then in July of 2018, he was actually sentenced to 18 years in prison. He did I am say going he was to sorry. Full 18 years in the okay. Department of Correction. Brittany but he calls didn't it do closure. It. Justice has been served 
of 18 years is, I personally don't think that's enough, but it's a starter. She says today's decision starts the next chapter for her family. After hearing that person was just trying to give him a little taste of his own medicine, his ex-girlfriend has also spoken about how he was... It serves time. Well, the way my lawyer explained it to me is uh, no contest is, isn't a guilty plea. It's just, it's basically saying that you understand that there is a chance if you took it to trial that, that you could be found guilty. But afterwards, once you get out of prison, mm -hmm. um, you can be a felon, which means essentially it's a guilty plea. But you don't believe that you are guilty. No, I know I'm not guilty. Like, to believe it. I know that's I'm why you finna get your ass beat. Most concerned about not being there for my kids. You know, I love them to death, and so yeah, I bet you about do. not seeing them and not being there for them. Wait for me. Teach them wrong from right. I love you guys. Oh, you're gonna teach somebody wrong from right. And talked about how devastating this was on her life. On September 11th, my dreams and goals were beaten out of me. Today in court, Brittany Marcel so recalled her near-death experience 10 years ago. When but, he's in prison, he take my life about to use the phone Today, the judge heard emotional testimony from Brittany's family. It was the day I lost my Brittany. And Justin Hansen also another spoke man out of hearing, comes and without admitting that he was guilty, said the man that that's attacking him off. And then, and then another man come and say, no, let him get his ass beat. He deserves this. He like beating on women with shovels and sticks and shit. Justice has been served. Well, 18 years so. is, I personally don't think that's enough, but it's a starter. She says today's decision starts the next chapter for her family. After hearing what he said today, lack of empathy, lack of remorse, lived with, you know, free conscience for 10 years, are his words really good? Yeah. So I exactly. think we can move forward now. So he went into jail and it hasn't been going well for him so far. Back in November of 2019, he was beaten badly by another inmate. Justin Hansen is serving an 18-year prison sentence for the brutal shovel beating of a Cibola High School student. See it was November 26. Justin Hansen had only been at this Las Cruces prison for a week when an inmate attacked him. You can see here an inmate takes a swing at Hansen's head. The two move to the ground and an older inmate tries to pull off the attacker, but then stops. You can see an inmate tell him to back off or he would be next. After the attack, Hansen was left with bad injuries to his face. State police <laughs> report they say through other inmate interviews the attack stemmed from Hansen's quote high profile case. They think that it was someone who was angry at him because of this crime. So I think that person was just trying to give him a little taste of his own medicine. His ex-girlfriend has also spoken about how he was a horrible father to his first child, that he was abusive to her and has just done all these bad things, stolen and has done all these different crimes that haven't been reported to the police because his mom has basically protected him. He almost killed Brittany. I mean, I think he wanted to kill her and he ruined her life. I mean, Luckily, she's very grateful to be where she's at, but obviously it's not ideal. No one wants to go through something like this, and it's just been a huge setback for Brittany. She may never be 100% back to normal again, well, and thanks, he girl. took that from her. Talk so I believe he deserves those 18 years in prison. Well, that's some white shit for you. But I've been hearing so much crazy stuff these days that young people are doing now that you, you know... You, you used to look at the news or look at the internet and you would find, or the television, and you would find older people committing crimes like an old ass fucking serial killer. Like this motherfucker 67 years old. He, 
killing motherfuckers and like got a hundred and some people in his backyard in the ground and but re- recently these uh, people have been very very young and uh, I don't know all lives matter but young lives are out of control that's all I can say right now